Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo will whisk you off to Dodge City, where news of Custer's last stand is finally reaching the area. Sheriffs are bumbling bunch who forget to wear their badges, and a place... This place is a place where the entire community stands in awe of the rarest and most powerful rifle. One of only a thousand, and little do we realize that the contest between two men to claim it will have far-reaching implications outside the town. Yes, everyone who holds that gun has a story to tell. And tonight, we shall recall those days of yesteryear with a look at Anthony Mann's 1950 Western classic, Winchester 73. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. They knew all about your Springfield being single shot. You mean they had repeaters? Yeah. Only this time we just might outfox them. I kind of we got two Winchesters. To seven people, this gun was a magnet, a treasure, a weapon that promised life and dealt out death. For this saga of the West, Universal International has assembled a matchless cast. James Stewart whose personal feud led to one of the grimmest manhunts ever filmed. <laughs> Shelley Winters, trigger sharp and dangerous in her own way. Dan Durier, as vicious Waco Johnny Dean, who killed to get the gun. Stephen McNally, brutal, deadly, who wanted the rifle to slaughter men. Sound like an engine trader, but with all that smoke in the hills and you with no gun. Why don't you shoot? The man's right. Give him the gun. Supposing I don't tell you. Then what? Where is he? Where is he? Just in case you... I know how to use it. I understand about the last one.
Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Yes, in 1950, Anthony Mann would release two westerns, one of which would be the ultimate pitch reel to a man like James Stewart when searching for a director for Winchester 73. He had acquired this, among many other stipulations to his contract, in lieu of 200 grand for the starring role in the picture, along with the film Harvey. And the film's triumphs would see to fruition the other stipulations in that contract. The story of a rifle. A mere rifle has so many other stories to tell, both on and off screen. But what are these stories, and how do they shape the world of film we see today? Well, we need a partner on this trail westbound, so here with us is an old cowhand from the Comedy Valley whose work in podcasting has made sure that the wor- world of Jack Benny, Fibber McGee and Molly, Phil Harris and Alice Faye has stayed alive amongst many other ventures. He is one of the most fine individuals you will ever meet and he is here with us to talk about the first time that jimmy stewart really went dark in the old west please welcome to the show daryl lance aka buck benny howdy everybody it is great to be here (laughs) (laughs) welcome i'm so excited to do this i i I told zach that this is a film i'd like to do (laughs) and uh i don't know how how into it zach was but but I said, you know, if you're not a fan of the film, by the end of us talking about it, you will be. So, uh, no, so I, 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 I this is the fun. this is the first time that I've seen the film in full. I had seen this in chunks, um, but Anthony Mann, I was aware of because of the Furies, because I picked that up randomly when I worked at a thrift store. The Criterion of the DVD came through, um, uh, uh, through uh, through our store, and I picked it up on a whim, and I watched it and loved it. It's got Barbara Stanwyck and Walter Houston, so I'm I'm on board no matter what. But it's this like dark. It's a movie we should talk about on this show because it's like it's such a dark, twisted, like familial tale stuck in the old west. Um, and watching Winchester seventy three, and then going back to the Furies a day later, it was fun to kind of watch how he had taken some cues from the Furies to put into here, but also what he decided to move away from because the Furies is a very talky movie and Winchester 73, it has really good dialogue and it has wonderful dialogue moments, but it's mostly a visual piece. Um, But before we get to all that, Daryl, you, you run a podcast called Buck Benny OTR and you've been running it for a long time. And I would like to introduce you to the Ballyhoo listeners what got you into podcasting and what got you into podcasting about Buck Benny uh, or Jack Benny of all Jack people? Benny. I know we I get mean, confused. Well, well ju- it's just the Western sketches, nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we focus on for, for 15 years. We've only done those sketches over and over again. No. Um, well, let's see. I had a uh, commute to get to work uh, back in 2002. And so uh it was about an hour each way. And I was going, what am I going to, you know, use to occupy my time? And there really wasn't podcasts back then as much, or at least I didn't know about them. Mm-hmm. I think there was a few, but, uh, but then the, um, but I remembered listening to those little tapes you would get in the seventies that were like, where you'd get, a couple gun smoke episodes on a tape or you'd mm-hmm. get, or you, and, and we used to get them at Fred Meyer. I remember going to Fred Meyer and looking at the tape boxes and deciding by the cover of the box, which one I was going to get. And so it'd be like gun smoke or a, a green Hornet, that sort of thing. 
And so, and I didn't know anything about Jack Benny and I didn't get any Jack Benny tapes at the time. So Jack Benny's still not in my, my wheelhouse at all at that point. But I go and I uh, pick up, I, I, I say, oh, well, Gunsmoke. I remember Gunsmoke. So I'm, I'm going to find some Gunsmoke. And so I find this set that is at, um, that's a Costco uh, of Gunsmoke. And I'm thinking, oh, I should buy that set. It's got like 40 episodes or whatever. But then I thought, I'll look on eBay to see if there's another set or something with more or whatever. Well, then I find on eBay, people are selling sets that have like 500 episodes, like the whole run. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I get that and I start listening to them, really enjoy them. And then because I'm enjoying these so much each day, I go on and find some uh, forums where I'm talking and and asking people for recommendations and Jack Benny keeps coming up over and over and over again, Jack Benny and probably suspense. So I pick up suspense and I listen to that. I love that. And I pick up Jack Benny and, and start listening to Jack Benny and I think hey, it's all right. It's, it's different. It's, it's a strange <laughs> concept, you know, that this whole behind the scenes sort of thing where he talks to his cast and, and, a the lot show of ins- about the show, the show, the show like, yeah, 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 and so much insider stuff in there that I'm like, okay, it takes a little while to break through, but then I find I'm starting to like it more and more and more, right? And by the time I listen to about 12 episodes, I'm completely bought into this thing, and so I'm just listening at random because there's so much that I'm I'm, I'm going to 1942, and then I jump to 57, and then you know just all over the place, but. I love that show. And, and then uh, I started to sell some of them on, uh, on eBay um, because I wanted to do like a criterion sort of concept with them. I, I would have my uh, little commentaries I would do on there. I would talk about the different things. I would try and include extras like appearances that they make on other shows and things. And so I'm trying to kind of create that. And then uh and, but it's still not, it feels like, you know, I'm reaching certain people and they're really loving what I'm doing, but I'm like, there's gotta be a way to share about that. Cause I'm just so, I so love it. And I want more people to hear about it, more people to share to more people. Well, then I figure out this thing called podcasting in about 2004 or something, 2005. So I create the channel, create a, a, a a name and everything for the Jack Benny OTR podcast, you know, show. And then, uh, and then I leave it alone because I don't, I don't know what to do with it exactly. I don't know exactly what I'm doing. So I just use it as a sort of space to put things. And so I just shove a few things out there, but then I look a few, I don't know, a few months later and I notice, Oh, I've had a bunch of people listen to this stuff that I've thrown out there just as junk. And so I'm like, well, if they're listening, I'm, I'll put out something more organized. And so then I start putting out these shows about Jack Benny. And then I figure out how to list it on, on iTunes. And that makes a whole different world. Because I think I had, I think my first podcast, I had 13 listeners. And then by the next week, we put it on iTunes. When I, when I put it on iTunes, that next day, I had 100 and something listeners. Right. And then it just kept on growing. And so then I was doing more and more. And and I, I've done it now for uh probably right on 15 years that I've done the podcast and uh, maybe a little more. And and that's something to, and and that's something to keep in mind with the audience listening to this is that you were, you were coming at the forefront of this, 
genre of media existing and like like my first exposure to podcasting I always attributed it to Smodcast with Kevin Smith and Scott Mosier. However, though, if I were to look back, I would have definitely found your show at some point because I looked on podcasting like like channels and whatnot for Jack Benny stuff. So, like, I can't remember if I explicitly found you around 2004, 2005. What I do remember, though, is that when I was in a rehab facility and going to an outpatient center, that yours was one of the only places where I could could find consistent Jack Benny listening material. And so I started listening to you a lot um, in that time, and it kept a lot of my interest in Benny alive combined with finding the books on eBay and rediscovering those because I had read them at the library, but I never owned them. Now I own them, but that, but at the time, that was like me kind of reacclimating to my Benny knowledge. But the other part of it was you were also doing other shows like Gunsmoke and Viver McGee and Molly, and so I was able to kind of reacquaint myself. Like I'm not a big Viver McGee and Molly listener or even Gunsmoke listener, but like if it's there, I'll listen to it, and. So it was nice to get an encapsulated, uh, like little world of old time radio with curation and guides, whether it was you or OTR Rob. And then later you've had people like Terry Phillips and Kathy Fuller Seeley and John Henderson from This Day and Jack Benny coming on board. And so, like, there's there's been a nice swath of people in the community to provide their commentary for it. Um, but and Within that, though, is also with old time radio, obviously, comes some form of love of Golden Age Hollywood. So, here's my question to you before we get into this whole trail What is your experience with Golden Age Hollywood, and what is your first experience with Winchester 73? Yeah, um, I've always been a fan, it seems like, since a little kid of old films, and um, re- really got into it with with TCM in the, in like the eighties and nineties and just really enjoying, um, the classic films. And I'm a huge fan of Alfred Hitchcock and all of his work. I'm a huge fan of, um, uh, of, of Orson Welles and all the things that Orson's done. Thank um, you, Buck. I really appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nobody else and, seems to like it, but you do. And I've only done it for you and nobody else. <laughs> it's very nice. <laughs> uh, and then uh, Jimmy Stewart has just been a favorite because I mm-hmm. um, started watching the, um, uh, the It's a Wonderful Life every year for many years and then just started branching out into his other work. And it was just so, I found it so interesting, um, the broadness of his career. What would he, how in the early years of his career, at least the big things he was known for were, were like the Philadelphia story um, mm-hmm. and, and comedies, and usually like comedies. That. And then, and then of course, Mr. Smith goes to Washington and, and things like that. And then uh, he goes to the war and comes back and then does, um, it's a wonderful life, which we all love, but it didn't do all that well at the time, apparently. Mm-hmm. And so he was thinking, okay, this ultra friendly persona that I use in so many of my films 
you know, it might not be working and, and it might not be what the public wants. So I'm going to try and branch out and how anybody, I mean, uh, well, basically no one did okay him to do, <laughs> to do <laughs> Winchester 73. It was essentially him fro- forcing Winchester 73 down their throats. I mean, it, what, it, what it seemed like is something that they had on the shelf for a long time and they didn't know who was going to do it or whatever, but eventually they get around to doing it. And he was like, well, I've got Harvey in my back pocket because Harvey is, uh, of course, the the movie about um, uh, about him seeing a, a rabbit or a bunny or whatever, that, that's giant bunny that, that no one else His name's Harvey. See. Get it right. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and so he'd done the Broadway version, I guess, or the – am I right with that? Yeah, so he – but I, I I was interested in finding this out because I I like Harvey, but I'm not a Harvey expert. And apparently, as he describes in the commentary interview for Winchester, he had done it for a couple of summers while Frank Fay was on vacation. Um, which which must have been the most wonderful summers for that Broadway audience because they weren't seeing a hateful person doing the show; they no. were seeing Jimmy Stewart do it. So, yes. Um, but yeah, no, he he had already done it on Broadway with the summer stuff, and James Stewart's a more commodable name than oh, Frank for sure. Fay for several reasons. Um, and so yeah, I. Actually, it's funny because we're our friend Kathy, who's been on the show and we talk with each week for um, for Buck Benny OTR. She she was the one who pointed me to how big a deal this film and Harvey were from a financial <laughs> standpoint. Um, and I wanted to touch on something that you brought up. Sure. You mentioned Jimmy before the war and Jimmy after the war. Now, on this show, which stemmed off of a whole Hitchcock discussion podcast that we did with several guests it jimmy stewart the way he's been imitated by myself rather sillily um he uh it's coming off of the idea of making a darker persona off of the man that we knew in the 30s and even the 40s and to some extent some of his work with hitchcock in the 50s because of how he's playing a little bit he's still the everyman Mm -hmm. but Jimmy Stewart before the war is completely different from after the war, even with it's a wonderful life in mind because, and I, and I think that a lot of that, obviously war has a lot to do with that, but also there's a, there's a point where he must realize that evolution is afoot because I rewatched Destry rides again last night to prepare for this, for the one reason that I wanted to see how, I wanted to compare Jimmy in that film to how I was looking at him in Winchester 73 a few days back when I watched it. And the thing that I get is, is that he pulls back on the everyman mm-hmm. in uh, Winchester in a way oh, that sure. he does not with 73 and, or in, in the way that he does not with Destry. In Destry, he's basically doing his character from the Philadelphia story if he were in the Old West or doing his character from Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, this idealism. And it's almost like after the war, the idealism fades away, It's mm-hmm. which is very, very fascinating. And I'm, and I'm wondering, like, is it a shock? Was it a, like, was it a complete shock to you as it must have been to anybody when you saw him taking on these darker roles? Like, 
because to me it was like it, it's it's night and day and and Hitchcock I think is a good mixture of the two because you get his you get his everyman charm but you also get a, a good tinge of the darkness um certainly in his first film for Hitchcock you even get more of that that's the uh the man who knew too much right and oh was, no um no no well, rope he, was his first one yeah rope was yeah. his first one where he's I love Rope. I love that yeah. movie to death. My problem is, is that he has to throw his beliefs under the bus in the last five minutes because he's he plays the professor who's all into freaking Nietzscheism and whatnot and just going like, yeah, the, it'd be great if we could just kill off undesirables and that way we wouldn't have to stand in line long for movie tickets. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think I think Rope gets caught into a niche of of being so focused on we're going to do it look like this is done in one shot the entire film that 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 becomes uh, i don't know almost like a, a a teaching vehicle or something to say here's here's how you can do this make it look like one shot just say artsy back but i think i think i would have preferred <laughs> if if he would have used all his techniques like he did in all his other films and just treated it like any other film sure yeah. he could have done more extended shots that you know a 10 or 15 minute shot if you wanted to in one place but the 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 not having it shot like a regular film it, it hurts it somewhat and the, ex and I, the experiment outweighs the story that yes, it, it, and that's like and i i have to take that in every time that i rewatch rope because i love the film for the story and for the experiment but mm -hmm. like you have to i almost have to throw away film brain because there's some I've noticed that with Rope, there's a lot of love for that experiment and only the experiment. And I'm like, yeah, but if you look at that story, like it's like the one of the the rawest versions of the psychopathic trope you'll get from Hitch until Psycho, and then he delves off of it again until he revisits it in Frenzy. And so, like, there's there's something about watching that evolution come forward. Um, and with Jimmy Stewart in particular. You know, that's a year after It's a Wonderful Life, which is yes. a very dark film with an optimistic outlook by the end. But mm -hmm. he's he's asked to play. I don't I, I've always found George Bailey to be. He's a little bit he's he's a little self-centered and that's kind of the point. But then he and he's but the decisions that he makes, he has to learn that he hasn't been self-centered the entire time, but that what he desires is not necessarily what counts. And in, in a sense, it's a darker, more complex role for Jimmy Stewart that we have elevated to the nicest man on earth. And I'm like, mm -hmm. if you really peel back George Bailey, the way you can peel back his character, Lynn in Winchester, yes, he's a nice guy, but there's a lot to him mm -hmm. that is seething under the surface. Like there's a boiling tension in George Bailey. There's a boiling tension even in, um, uh, in uh, LB Jeffries in Rear Window, and mm -hmm. I I like watching him simmer, and that's something that I think Anthony Mann was able to really tap into, with 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 his characterization in Winchester that would carry them into several westerns, and it would bring Jimmy into John Ford's world, which I'm not the world's biggest John Ford fan as a person, but his films went. Uh, with, with the exception of some selections that we've covered on this podcast, 
Liberty Valance and other films that he has done in the Western mold in the 50s, there are there are certain moments, especially with somebody like Stewart or people that aren't John Wayne, where I'm like, he's getting a lot of cool stuff mm-hmm. out of these side actors. And for with this starting with Anthony Mann, like it's amazing to think that this was Anthony Mann's second Western. It's not even his it's not even like he hasn't been doing this as long as John Ford. Right. He actually starts in noir as a primary form of his directorial success. But I figured it'd be good before we jump into the film to talk about Anthony Mann a little bit because well, and let's just just let me grab onto that about Anthony Mann just for a second. The the piece that that you just said about this is his second um, western, and that before that he was doing. Uh, you know, the darker crime films and that sort of thing um, that that I think that's what makes him come at Westerns from a different angle. Mm-hmm. And it and it makes this this Western really work. Um, and the fact that he didn't let the fact that he has Jimmy Stewart in the lead role soften the film much. I mean, it, it, it's yeah. It, it, and gives and 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 Jimmy didn't want him to do that. Of course, Jimmy wanted mm-hmm. to have that hard edge and and be totally different. But I mean, for an audience watching this Jimmy Stewart film in 1950, that would have been quite a wake up call for them. And and being a, and can you accept Jimmy in this completely different, darker role? Mm-hmm. Now, you having said the audience was primed for this with films like it's a wonderful life that is darker than people think when you watch mm-hmm. it and his performance is darker i mean his his performance in it's a wonderful life is closer to his performance in uh winchester 73 mm-hmm. than it is to his performance in uh in, in um, uh philadelphia story mm-hmm. right you can see the connection there so i mean it isn't it's not a night and day difference it's it's where he he'd been building this and and like you said, in Rope, he also has a darker character. So so those films lead up to this film. It's it's not like a huge light switch you're flipping, but it's close. And it's where where I'm sure um, they were wondering if the audience going to accept this. And obviously they did because it did. I believe it did even better, quite a bit better than Harvey. Um, yeah. And that and, and, and that, Harvey was how, like I said, Harvey was how he got it made. Essentially, essentially, he said, "Well, I'll do Harvey because you want me to do Harvey, but you're going to also do Winchester '73," and 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 they're all sure we'll do both of those, you know. And so, that's, yeah, it, I think how it got done. Yeah, there. No, it's in within regards to the buildup. Actually, I'm I'm glad you pointed that out because it isn't just a night and day, but it feels night and day when you consider what he's known for i guess but yeah. like that that's but that's a good point is that he builds up and the the part of the reason why it might feel like night and day is also because there's a big gap where he's not in film because of world war 2 mm-hmm. and you know i'm sure that that has an effect on the way you want to portray things going forward right. um but he had and you're like, just older as well i mean that you yeah. mix that in too yeah yeah and he actually he said that um, you know, the, the interview that he did that is located on the Winchester 73 DVD, which, by the way, this movie's not on Blu-ray in this country, and I'm frankly shocked that it's not on Blu-ray in this country. Like, I don't know how Kino hasn't put it out or um, or, or even Criterion, because it, it certainly merits it. But 
he said but it does, um, there is i mean it's a nice looking copy that's out there i mean they, yeah they, oh yeah they, it definitely exists it would be lovely to have it on blu-ray i mean it's about as nice as you can make a dvd look but yeah um, i mean i popped the dvd in and it like the only reason it loses resolution is because it was part of a six pack with a with with five other westerns yeah and it's on the same disc as destry so it's like the picture's a little compressed um for more than a 4k tv will be able to read but it's still like it still plays very well the version that is on youtube inexplicably which that could be a whole other discussion is very pristine and very crisp and that's the version my girlfriend watched because we watched it over facetime and she was she had it on youtube on her end and i had the dvd on the other she was getting the better print than i was so right right um but he he had he had this interview that lays throughout the entire film and he had this to say about the four year gap he's like i think this was and i and i had to transcribe this as best as i could because jimmy deals in ums and wells and i I, and then the other thing buck about the western is that you see it's kind of like candy no but that he he i had to transcribe this as best as i could which is i think this was at the end of a sort of at the end of a time where I was sort of wandering around being away for four years in the war to sort of try to get my uh, myself back in the picture business. And it took time, and there were a lot of things that came up that I didn't expect, and I really didn't know how to handle very much. But I had great moral support by an awful lot of people, and I think that this is one of the reasons. Of course, 41, I got married and got two young boys along with it, and so I got this feeling that I got a that I hadn't before, I suddenly have a family to support, and I better work and get there fast and do a lot. This idea of so many pictures in a row wasn't new to me. This was one of the wonderful things that happened as a contract player at one of the big studios. Because, like, that interview talks about, like, how how does it feel to have a bunch of Mm -hmm. films come out at once? Well, he was used to this. Like, he thanks MGM for teaching him that that area and on his he's of all the actors i've heard talk about the contract system he's probably the most complimentary of the contract system yeah and and, and like it should it it should it has a place and it should exist in his in his brain he's not part of it anymore what doesn't want to be part of it or anything but he's like you were always working you were always working on your craft you were either, and I love his his line, and I think other people have said it besides him as well. But you were, you were either uh, having a big part in a small film or a small part in a big film, but they were you were always working, and and yeah. it, and it, and and that let you fine tune your your craft as you went. And I thought that was um, he's always insightful with that piece. Um, this his whole, I love his commentary on this thing because. It, how often do you get to sit down with and have a two-hour interview with Jimmy Stewart? I mean, that's that's pretty right. cool that you have that. Now, having said that, some of it is really humorous to listen to. I mean, when when they're saying, "Well, we we'd like to get a little background on some on some of the actors. If you have any stories about them or anything, that'd be great." Here's Will Gear showing up. Tell us about Will Gear. Well, uh, he was quite quite an actor, and and uh, yeah, he did a fine job. Uh, anything no that's about it <laughs> no 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 <laughs> then they get to the next person and he'd say almost the exact same thing about every person they're a fine actor or they knew their lines but there's nothing like a story about the person i mean every once in a while you'd have a story about somebody but generally speaking it was just 
Look, they, I, I didn't. They, they, I don't they got, know. If they, they found their spot correctly, and they and they gave their line. Yeah. <laughs> I, look, I don't know if they like to paint. I don't know if they like to ski shoot on Saturday. I just I clocked in and I clocked fucking out. <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly what it sounds like, right? It, it's, it's, it, he he wasn't a guy. Uh, you didn't get the impression, at least on this film, anyway, because you don't know in the other films, but but on this film where he didn't sit back there and get to know his his co-stars very well. Um, and having said that, this film and that we haven't talked about yet, the, the, but I'll I'll open the door for this and we can talk about this more later. But it's a very compartmentalized film mm-hmm. where there mm-hmm. are people that maybe would never see each other that are big parts of the film because they're in totally different areas of the film. It, it's a little bit like um, how the West was won. Or, or even like a Love Boat episode or whatever, where it's got these little, <laughs> little vignettes sort of throughout the, the thing where, where – because uh, the star – everybody is misleading in this film if they're saying the star is Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart is the actor that's featured most in this film. He's, he's the star the big, of this he's film the shi- He's the shiny the name. Gun. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah it, it, the star of this film is, that, is the Winchester 73, and you follow it wherever it goes. It – Jimmy Stewart owns the gun for a very little piece of this film at the very beginning, um, and and spoilers uh, at the very end. But the uh, but but the but the, the the process of where the gun goes is where the story flows, and so we get to spend time with with some Indians with that that get a hold of the gun. We get to spend some time with uh, with with a lot of different people throughout that own the gun, and we'll get into that as we go. Yeah, but but it makes it where this is a very compartmentalized film that has different sections that you don't see Jimmy Stewart for a while. It focuses on other parts, and then it comes back to Jimmy Stewart as the gun comes back into his sort of his area. And um, anyway, it, feel, but, it, it feels like it, it, it in a lot of ways. If if I wanted to give this a modern uh, comparison for a younger audience listening, it feels a lot like a Lord of the Rings scenario where the ring. The ring takes on, take like grabs a hold of people in several different ways. The difference being, obviously, the ring stays with Frodo more often than not by the by, but through the majority of that trilogy. But here, this gun is passing itself off as a point of incident, or like it's like this. It's it's very much a uh, it's a connecting thread throughout the entire film. But the gun seems to bring out some form of personality in each person that is carrying it and the i really think that that this is a western that i don't see john ford pulling off the same way that like i would see any other western him pulling off like i think that anthony mann is the one of the sole reasons that this film works on a visual level and we should give we should give him a little bit of due proper with with the story because not everybody might know who Anthony Mann is because mm-hmm. one he wasn't as loud as John Ford but number two um, he's a uh, he's a director that even Stewart said I don't think he got the credit he deserved um, but he's born Emil Anton Bunsman in San Diego to Emil Theodore and Bertha Bunsman. Um, who are an academic from Bohemia and a teacher from America of, Barry, of Bavarian Jewish descent. Um, and he was raised in Lomaland, a theosoph- theosophical community. I had to look up what this meant. 
in it's a community where the emphasis was on artistic, religious, and military training, and it functioned as a learning environment where the children were raised separately from their parents. So, so it's like the movie Soldier. The the, the, movie, the children are born, and then they're taken immediately to the military <laughs> academy. Um, uh, a man was left there by his parents when he was three because they returned to Austria because M. M- Emil, his father, was suffering from poor health, and they had to did it take Karen over there. Bertha didn't return for Emil before he became Anthony. Was Emil? He didn't come. She didn't come back for Emil until he was fourteen years old. So he spends the age of three to fourteen in this commune, and then her return comes about after the cousin raised concerns about the Loma Land colony. So that's when she got him out of there. Bertha struggled to raise her on her own. Uh, she took many different occupations during the rest of his schooling. Um, there's the report from uh, that in New Jersey, Emil attended elementary school in East Orange and high school in Newark, but dropped out to go to work. Um, the New York Times obit has him leaving high school at age 16, but Central High School transcripts indicate that a 1925 January dropout date when Emil was 18 Regardless of the dropout time, he dropped out before a certain friend of his would graduate from high school, one Dory Sherry, who was would become one of the most embattled heads of a studio ever when he took over MGM and would fight with Louis B. Mayer over every damn thing. Dory Sherry is at the center of the controversy around the Red Badge of Courage, John Huston's film, where... Mm-hmm. Louis B. Mira wanted that freaking like taken apart and blah 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 blah. And there's a great story about Houston basically like going into Louis B. Mayer's office and saying like I don't want to be the cause of a division between the heads of the studio. And Louis B. Mayer told him like You believe in this picture, don't you, John? John goes yes. He's like Well, you fight for it. You fight for it. Don't care what I freaking say. You fight for it, and <laughs> don't let me hear you talk that way ever again. Like so, like Sherry was dealing with an embattled scenario in MGM. Prior to this, though, he's just a high school kid doing high school productions with a young Anthony Mann. They're acting together in productions around uh, around their school. And this must have gotten his bug because Anthony Mann then assumed the name of Anton Bunsman and began looking for stage work upon his arrival in New York. He appears in uh, shows like The Blue Peter, The Little Clay Cart, and Uncle Vanya, and then he moves into directing shows. What, uh, like what years is it, are you talking about now? We're talking about the we're talking about the early to mid twenties, like the or okay. the mid to late twenties. Yeah, so he okay. gets his start in the Broadway scene as most others do. He by 1937 he makes his way into film, joining. Um, uh, joining as a talent scout, casting director, and screen test director for one David O. Selznick, um, who we won't do the impression today, guys. Just let's leave David alone for today. Like <laughs> he he's a he's a, he's a freak on our show, but um, he worked on films in these capacities, such as Rebecca, Intermezzo, and The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. And then he goes over to Paramount and assistant directs the film Sullivan's Travels for Preston Sturgis. Then he gets his Broadway or his he gets his film debut as a director from Paramount with a film called Doctor Broadway, which labels itself as a mystery movie. But I want that to be a musical about a doctor who wants to sing. Yeah, <laughs> that would be. Th- that's what year my, is that? That year okay. is 1942, and. Okay. 
So he gets his start early, but he kind of gets shifted around. And he starts doing general low-grade assignments for films at Republic, such as Strange Impersonators, Strangers in the Night, My Best Gal, and also frequenting into RKO with films like Two O'Clock Courage and Sing Your Way Home. But he gets this big break in noir with the Dennis O'Keefe film T-Men at a independent studio called Eagle Lion, which I've never heard of before. And he then gets into bigger efforts um, as his time goes on. He goes back to RKO for Desperate, then goes back to Eagle Lion for Rod Deal. He does films at MGM like Border Incident where Sherry hired him to do it because he had clearly seen the noir work he was doing. And um, by 1949, he gets his first A-picture assignment, which is The Furies with Barbara Stanwyck. The film isn't released until 1950. So this is his second big picture. Yes, this is his second A-picture. And Aaron Rosenberg, the producer of Winchester, was very close with Stewart in forming this film and Stuart mentions throughout the interview we saw the western that he did so they saw the furies because there's no other western to to look at so they saw the furies and then got him for this film and this is where i was fascinated by the fact that this is a man who is shaped with noir coming into the western territory and bringing a stark expressionist view in certain respects and just a stark outlook period into the Western that it's not that it hadn't existed before. John Ford obviously had brought darkness to the Western prior, but this one's, this one feels gritty and mean. And well, this is by many folks considered the first adult Western or psychological Western or whatever you're going to call it at the time. Yeah. And I, I do think that's the other reason why I wanted to bring this film out, because I think without this film, I don't know if you have films like The Searchers and and future dark films by lots of different folks. And then also, mm-hmm. do you have Gunsmoke on, on radio or television? I don't know. I mean, I think mm. I think this is a catalyst that, that allows that to happen, because Gunsmoke comes along two years later right. in radio. And the we have the audition show we know what that was like and that was a lot different that was a strange noir noir cross between uh, kind of detective and and uh, gun and that that's what got them got thinking about okay how let's look at gun smoke and let's 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 try to do another gun smoke here and so they they then redo gun smoke and make it this darker piece but about um uh, matt dillon and they get william conrad to come in and and just hit it out of the park with that first episode uh, right and 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 it goes from there on and and what a great piece to have that leads to an interesting television series for sure um but i think all of that comes from winchester 73 in some ways i agree because i i in a certain way like you it, it'll it's it's almost like Anthony Mann is opening the door saying like hey guys like this is a genre that is not only not only rich but deserves better treatment that it's been getting and you know it, it there's sometimes there's the collision of forces that just work yep. and Stewart brought this up in the interview and I love that he brought this up is like the idea that the 
the Western's been around. It's like the oldest form of storytelling within film and that it ebbs and flows. The Western mm-hmm. genre ebbs and flows. Um, its popularity at its peak would then see an equally spectacular fall, but then it would rise up and down again depending on who was helming it. And John Ford arguably – you know, I'm not his again. I'm not his biggest fan, but he is arguably the reason the genre sustained itself as often as it did because he would go back to it. Mm-hmm. Stage Stagecoach and Union Pacific, a film that he did not do, but they they come out in the same year and they really reinvigorate the western from a box office standpoint, let alone a critical one. And, and who did who did Red River? Was that mm. H- Howard? I think Howard, that's Howard Hawks. Yeah. Yes, it was Howard Hawks. Yeah. And I was just trying to make sure I get the name right. So. Yeah, and um, well, and I and and Rio Bravo is another film that benefits from movies like Winchester seventy three. Yes. Because it that that's a film that's my favorite John Wayne movie of all time because it, like the the characters kind of like centralized focus on the siege town like he fits in that world so perfectly. Yes. And um and I think that. With Winchester 73 in particular, I found it interesting that this dark edge comes about. Mm -hmm. It's always been there in the story, but there is some piece of production information that blew my mind away. So I love Fritz Lang, but I love his work prior to America, and I'm starting to learn more about his American work. And this film had initially been given to Fritz Lang. Mm-hmm. And the friction came when Universal did not want him making the film under his own production banner, Diana Productions. But Lang envisioned that the rifle was the source, sole source of Lynn's strength and his only excuse for living. And it's basically upping the ante on the obsession over the gun f- right. for Lynn, not yes. for not for Dutch Henry. And right. that to me is interesting because it would it would play into Lang's strengths as a filmmaker, but I don't think the film would be as impactful as it is under Mann's direction. Um, it's it's almost like I'd want to see it, but I know that I would still prefer Mann's version of it at the same time. Um, well, Winchester, you feel like in this version, you feel like the Winchester seventy three <clears throat> is an important part of the film, and like I say, it's a driving force in the film. But as far as for, for Jimmy Stewart's character, it's more of an avenue to get to his brother. I mean, he's trying to get to his brother the entire film. That's what his driving force is. And it happens to be that that avenue leads through the Winchester 73 virtually always. So it, It's a symbol uh, over the victory he's going to have over his brother and not right. so much the source of his strength, which is interesting. It's a, it's a, it's this visual cue for us as the audience about like the, this, this idea of the power of the West. Like this is, this is labeled as the gun that won the West. Like this is how it was marketed back in that day. And to have, to have Stewart's character, he's 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 interested in it up to a point, but his brother is far more. It's almost like they basically took that Lang idea, but just gave it to Dutch Henry and didn't give it to Lynn. And I think that's all for the better because it creates this palpable villain in Dutch Henry. And you know, I think that that's like that. That's a part where we, as we start talking about the plot of the film, really. Yeah. You know, this thing is like a it's like a weird chain of events linked by this one gun where each character is shown a folly 
of sorts. Um, and in a sense, it kind of gives me Coen Brothers vibes, which I'll always look for. Like, there's always some kind of consequence to having this gun in your hand. Right. <laughs> well, really and fun. there's almost, and we don't know, it could continue on with uh, with Lynn's character as far as we know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, when you get a hold of the gun and you own the gun, you immediately have trouble. Trouble comes with the gun, and usually you're dead because because of you you acquired the gun. So um, almost every 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 instance and so who knows and if this would have went on for another 20 minutes maybe he would get killed and somebody else would have the gun (laughs) so that that was the end of his character but but i don't think they wanted to go there so i guess i saved the day what (laughs) (laughs) the darkest awesome that's some kid shooting dead or something walk over there and get the gun and start walking away with the gun and that's the end of the film it's just it's it's ralphie from a christmas story (laughs) he didn't shoot his eye out he shot jimmy's eye out that was that his mother got it wrong you see <laughs> he shot his eye out, but it's in the back of the skull, so he's kind of dead. But anyway, <laughs> they told me a BB, it wasn't a BB gun; it was a real gun, and I didn't know. <laughs> and, and then Ralphie gets on top of Jimmy Stewart and starts beating him up like Scott Farkas. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like or Jimmy Stewart bitten. puts on his winter coat and then falls down and can't get back up. I can't it's, get it's up. <laughs> I can't get up. <laughs> I can't lower my arms. <laughs> oh, but one thing I wanted to mention uh, before I forget, so because this yeah. is different than anything else we'll talk about, is this film. I mean, I, I think it's been redone at some point as a made-for-TV movie or something, probably. But the concept of it has been redone multiple times. Of of a, a where you follow a gun through all the different owners of the gun. Mm-hmm. And so in 1991, I believe there was a, a film, I think it might be called one gun. I think it's called one gun. And it's about the gun where everybody that owns it. Trouble befalls them mm-hmm. and the gun travels around and you, and you go to, and I, and I saw the film and I thought it was really interesting how it did that, but it did it almost to a fault, kind of like rope where it, it becomes the driving force of the film. And you don't really, get a chance to get into all the characters because it's always with somebody else and so you have these little 15 minute vignettes where somebody has it and then they get killed and then it goes to the next person um but apparently there's going to be another version that's in production now that is um i think it's just maybe just called gun i can't remember but uh it it again is where a glock it's a glock that gets uh, I think take stolen from a pawn shop or something, and then it follows that gun through all its different permutations oh. and all the different people that ha- that have it. So that would be very interesting to see how they how they pull that off in a more like in an outside the Western context. Because yeah, I, it, and that's and that's what it is. And the, the other movie I'm describing from I think it was '91. That was a modern take too. It was yeah. it was where it was where it, which works in a modern take because it could be obviously it's usually like a gang that has it for a while and then it could be somehow it, it gets into the hands of like an old man and, and his wife or whatever and then or it like a psychopath or something yeah, like that. yeah yeah right right there's a million ways you can play it and 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 it's fun to just watch how this gun goes from person to person or, or the police get it for a while because they confiscate it from somebody and then but then it gets stolen from the police and, you know, various things can happen. Or so. a cop is bumbling with it. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Juice himself um, and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, the, it's the cops from Plan 9 from Outer Space because yeah. I don't trust them with guns. <laughs> One of them scratches his head with it. But I, um, I just always thought 
since watching Winchester, I thought it was an interesting concept. And then to see the concept again, essentially, in a modern context was interesting too. I thought. Yeah. So. And it's, I, and we can kind of jump into the plot on this now and kind of yeah, go ahead. like bandy about here, but the, the, the main impetus of it begins there in Dodge city, Kansas, um, where <laughs> Wyatt, the sheriff it literally forgets that he has a badge and it's Wyatt Earp. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, that's, this is not the Huckleberry I'm used to. This is, <laughs> this is a little bit different, but like, he's such a side character in it. Like just to think that Wyatt Earp like, is this like huge, you know, like figure of lawman and gambler that is just like a side character in this well, movie, and like an afterthought. He, the character becomes bigger just for the, for the, um, you know, it's not those things you can plan. It's just right. the fact that who you happen to cast, all of a sudden something happens to their career or whatever. So he becomes huge as uh, Grandpa Walton in the 1970s. Yeah, Will and Gear. Yeah, we Will should, Gear. We should, yeah, and yeah. and uh, and and seeing him on screen just makes you go, oh, it's Grandpa Walton, <laughs> a young Grandpa <laughs> Walter, a younger Grandpa Walton, and it shows he was already old, somewhat older in this film. So it's like, wow. Good night, Lynn Bob. Good night, Lola Bob. Good night, yes. Johnny Bob. Good night, Henry Bob. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, uh, Will Gear has such an interesting career and such an interesting life. I mean, yeah. he he was he was married in I think it was 1924 I think I read that he was married and ended up having three kids or whatever also in 1924 the same year he he uh I don't know if he falls in love with or whatever uh, a a male um individual and so has this ongoing um sexual relationship he's he's poly amorous with lots of different people uh, oh. apparently and then he goes um he he's ultra left wing so he gets he's like in the communist party at different times and doing all sorts of, of things behind I, I, yeah i was reading he was blacklisted and one of the films that he appeared on is a future episode that's already been planned called salt of the earth mm -hmm. um uh, which was which which will deal with union strikes amongst other right. things like the history of that film is as i've been digging into it it's been crazy but but yeah and this it, is one that this is this film is one of the last ones he does before he gets blacklisted i mean he might be like one or two more and that's about it and then he gets blacklisted pretty much in the early 50s up to the searchers because he's in the searchers yeah and he um and then he his yeah, he career comes back from blacklisting probably faster than just about anybody else because he comes back like say 56 57 or something like that he's back because when is the searchers and the searchers 50 something 56 yeah so 56. he has this five-year gap after the yeah. blacklisting initially and but a lot of people have 10-year gaps and some of them 15-year gaps after the blacklisting so i don't know yeah well the director of salt of the earth um herbert bieberman had quite a huge swath of time away with salt of the earth was made under independent auspices so like mm -hmm. Some of these guys, if they weren't doing stuff under a pseudonym like Adult and Trumbo, they were creating stuff on their own and finding theaters that would show their stuff. And I think that that's – I think with Will Gear in particular and other figures like him that it's interesting to see that they are cultural icons for a generation for the Western – 
But if they were, but if you, when you dig more about them, you realize that they're pretty far removed from those characters that they play. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason that it stands out in the Western as opposed to other genres is in the 1950s, the the Western sees a nice resurgence, and a lot of that is due to television because of reruns of older Westerns and an emphasis on eventually developing Western TV shows because you have things like Gunsmoke and The Lone Ranger and like eventually The Virginian and stuff like that. That that whole sense of Amer the of the the true American spirit when you start digging into all the actors in it that were like as far away from that mythos as possible by what people consider it to be it proves to be a a fascinating rabbit hole to dig yourself into right not well some people being authentic mm -hmm. but they're acting right next to somebody who's completely not that who's 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 totally a, a city boy type person but who who has the look and when he puts the hat on and can go ahead and take on the whole western thing yeah it works and and so sometimes there's no rhyme or reason as to who works better sometimes it's it's one of your city guys that come somehow had can pull off uh of being a western star and then there's other times where the people who who own a ranch and who that's what they kind of do and and maybe a lot more of those kind of folks came up sometimes through being um stuntmen and things like that and then and then cross over and they start featuring them in, in i mean it makes sense i would i would take it go oh this is a small part anyway but i want the somebody to to fall on a, a horse to get shot and then to fall why not just use the stuntman to be in the part and that way i don't have to find somebody that looks like the stuntman or anything or have the stuntman look like the person so you can see how they you a stuntman would start to get bigger and bigger roles and if they can actually say some lines yeah all of a sudden it, it crosses over i mean i think that's how we get uh, uh burt reynolds and some of those other actors that, that came over from that yeah so, and 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 actually you bringing up the stuntman will play into heavily into how man directed those action scenes mm-hmm. um what i want to talk about though is that so like the main impetus of Lynn, Lynn, Lynn McAdam and High Spade Frankie Wilson, um, uh, play, played by uh, Millard Mitchell, uh, they wander into town. They're searching for someone, and the person that they're looking for, they come across in the form of Dutch Henry. But Wyatt has had them surrender their guns at the sheriff's office, and they mosey into this centennial celebration where they are giving away after a shoot a marksman contest the winchester 73 rifle um and the uh i I made a note about like the obsession over this gun i in the context of the film i was able to treat it just as it's intended but I, i couldn't help but thinking like man this is like such a weird movie in certain respects about the obsession over a single gun like it's <laughs> there's an audience that loves this for the wrong reasons today but like yeah. i look at it i look at it as this well, can you strange, imagine i mean this gun is like a it's a powerful a singular piece. piece that no one's ever seen all these people are like i've never seen one i've heard about one or whatever yeah and the fact that it's called one of a thousand and i've read some about this it doesn't mean that it, that that there there might be you know seven of these going around or something not very many because they um you know every thousandth gun or so they find one that they think is perfect is the story and then they put this label on it 
and they in the movie they mentioned that two other people have them i can't remember the president and uh buffalo bill there yeah. you go yeah <laughs> and so you can see how if you are and we can see today with our gun enthusiasts how how into it they are and back then in the west when everybody had guns and everything you could see how some people would be obsessed with a gun like this and yeah no it's 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 the marketing around it like one in a thousand like it it, it calls to mind the comic book collector market where it's just yes. like yeah call the death of superman limited edition and everybody will buy it <laughs> like yep. but there's or put it slap a different cover on it and say that yes, your very, covers are very oh, rare oh very that issue becomes wow i gotta get that one yeah hey you have the winchester 73 rifle but do you have the variant variant the very <laughs> variant stock <laughs> the yeah. variant stock do you have the variant barrel that features polka dots on it and yeah. stuff like that <laughs> like just it's 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 an antique shop but it's treated like a comic book store <laughs> and just has a guy with a big ponytail um but no they they engage in the contest to win the gun and i love how man this clearly is this is our back lot this is the universal back lot and i and the reason i bring that up is that there are uh there are three primary shooting locations for the film, both two of which are in Arizona. One is in uh, Tucson and the other is in Mescal. But the back lot at Universal, you know, Universal is still not a financially stable studio by 1950. They, they keep themselves afloat by luck in a lot of cases <laughs> and monsters, but um, or Abbott and Costello. But right. um, but the, or in this the, case, this film. <laughs> yes, exactly. And this film in particular, the, the like you've I've been to the backlot tour and whatnot, and the western town looks pretty big. But like, there's a lot of instances of things being empty, and I think that man's greatest strength is using space because in this scene, along with several other scenes in towns, he plays with things on an insular level. Like it's very intimate. It's ve- rarely is it big swath of people roaming the city and he gathers them in a crowd and he uses the crowd as space, like to almost kind of like frame our two characters, especially in that above shot when they're, you know, when they're engaged in the shooting contest. Right. And I just find the way he uses space. Interesting. He does this in the furies as well, where he plays with crowds in a different way. Like, anything like it's it's not like john ford where he can go into a wider vista it seems like he uses something that john ford is also known for which is kind of like the peering through the door Mm -hmm. and i think man does it a little bit more to my mind expertly because it 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 maintains the intimacy throughout the piece rather than switching from place to place depending on what works for that shot in particular and that is extended into the scenes that follow because they have the shooting contest, which the skeet shooting at the end, like the the um, uh, where they finally decide the contest, which I didn't. I, <laughs> Stewart did have something to say on this that I thought was interesting. Apparently, they had a sharpshooter with the shell that actually hit the coin off to the side and whatnot, and he said, um, uh, "I think there was." another gun that was very close on the thing and the gun coincided with the gun that we were shooting. So like they're creating that movie magic there. You just mm-hmm. imagine like having somebody with the actual gun right alongside you and just <laughs> like, like just to get that accuracy point because it, it they do sh- show it getting shot pretty well. And mm-hmm. I, I love that 
those kind of moments when they happen in film because I always try to figure like where's the gun coming from in the angle and how does mm-hmm. it match with their framing like the Coen brothers do it in their True Grit remake where um uh, he's shooting those biscuits up in the air right. um and I, I so I'm always fascinated by that what I'm also fascinated by is when somebody decides to use shadow in a western and we get this pretty early on because Lynn wins the gun. Dutch is pissed about it and <laughs> beats him up for it. Well, let's go to let's go to Lynn's winning of the gun or whatever for a second. Yeah. So they're shooting at targets that are down the road against everybody, and so they all shoot at these targets. And most anybody else gets for bullseyes is two, and the two of them each get three. So they're immediately the two best shooters. Yeah. Lynn and and. At this point, I don't know. I don't. We don't know he's it's his brother yet. I don't. No, no, no. We don't find that out. We don't get that confirmed really until Shelley Winters picks up the photograph. Right. And uh, and it, it, it actually calls to mind the Robin Hood, the, the archery contest in Robin yes, Hood. Yes, um, agreed. Which um, I I can't say that that's the exact thing that the, the that the writers are are going off of, but. Um, you do have this this sheriff, th- th- this this Nottingham kind of scenario stuck in Dodge City, and there's a lot of tension boiled within it. I love that we don't know a lot about those two. We right. just know they want the gun, and that at that point, man, and we and know the, that they don't like each other. Yes, we know that we know, we know that they're at odds, but we don't know anything else. And so all we know is that they're pissed at each other, and they both want that gun. Yes. And but they want the guns for different reasons. Dutch wants the gun because of its power. Lynn wants the gun because it seems like Dutch wants the gun. So Lynn knows, well, I got to take that gun from him just to stick it to him further. <laughs> like, right, right. Like, yes. I'll show my, and, and I'll show my brother. Like he's really interested in the gun that much. It's like it's like it's it's it's. He always is using the gun for a point or to, to 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 get to a bigger thing which is of course like you say he's not gonna let his brother win the gun so it's like okay I, I, yeah it's look not only am i gonna kill you for killing our father but i'm also gonna just take this fancy gun away from you no. right <laughs> and show boys who learned the best from our father's shooting oh. uh, the way he taught us to shoot and, and oh. i'm gonna show you that i'm a better shot than you are yeah so so anyway so they so they so they do that and they then they take the the targets and move them back and mm-hmm. again they shoot each shoot three bullseyes then i love it then then, then then this is where it kind of goes off the rails for me because you then you get you get wider up going well it looks like we can move it back into the next county and you'd still be getting three bullseyes every time or something and i'm like you know if you moved it back another 50 feet i bet one of them wouldn't get a bullseye this next time because it's no, getting no no daryl you don't understand i have that magic bullet that would appear over 100 years later in dallas it's <laughs> <laughs> like it, it, no matter who you are your vision starts to go out at, at some point i mean I, i've been target shooting so i know that at some point it goes too far and you're like i can't hit anything anymore i just so. i just i i i um i rewatched the batman last night with my girlfriend and they there's a lot of instances where um people are using like zoom in goggles and whatnot so it's just yeah. like you just want a time traveler to just throw a pair to each of them and just be like all right now go and then they go like doc brown in the delorean comes in and just gives them like these high range goggles and then just leaves 
<laughs> and then like follow through on Wyatt Earp's little claim. But you're right. It is like they are and they're building up the mythos around these two with statements right. like that. They build them up like each of the characters is built up with their ability. And what makes the film wonderfully rewatchable for me is because of the reveal at the end with them being brothers. You go back to this and this is setting up like it's great screenwriting. Like it's great screenwriting yes. to watch the mythos built up before the revelation. You know that they are not to be messed with or reckoned with. And additionally, well, even their very first scene together is mm-hmm. so interesting because you have what happens, what we didn't cover. Uh, and I'll go back a little bit and we'll, we'll swing back and forth. But anyway, yeah. the, the, they come into this town and, and a lot of this movie requires you suspending some serious disbelief in, in, in what they're. So, so these are two cowboys that come into town that really know their stuff. So, so it's like, but they get into town with their guns on and somehow they kind of notice, but don't really notice that no one else has guns on. I'm like, seriously, I would think as soon as they rode into town, they'd be going, okay, this is weird. This must be a town that has some sort of ordinance that you can't have guns or something because nobody has guns on, but us. And, and yet they don't notice that. And so then, then when, when White Earp asks them to turn their guns in, they're like, what do you think you're doing asking us to turn our gun? You know, we're about ready to shoot you or whatever. Cause we don't. Yeah. That, that is interesting because like most towns would have and a surrender your weapon. Oh, I noticed, I, I noticed, I was wondering why everybody was seemed sort of naked or something like, Oh yeah. I noticed other people didn't have guns, but it's like, I'm sorry. The two of you will be talking about the fact that nobody has guns except for the two of you. If, so, if one of you noticed it and I can't believe you didn't notice it. So this is like, Okay, fine. We'll accept that all this crap happens so that they can have this scene where they're all, oh, no, you're going to take our guns. And then I love it. The room, the, <laughs> the sheriff's office becomes an unusable space because they have so many guns stored in there. It's, 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 it's the massive. only the only stockade that I have seen that more full is in red state with the, uh, with, with the Cooper Dell clan having this arsenal ready for Holy war. Like this is like, like that, but the difference is that in, in the movie red state, their guns are very well organized. And in this movie, they are just scattered around oh, exactly. or hung up everywhere. The guy in the guns. And it's like I'm a hat going, check okay, situation. Where's my little ticket, so like like a coat check, so yes. I can get my gun back. Yeah, and they don't. Would... They just take their guns and throw them in with the other guns. And so I'm like, well, whoever's leaving town, I would certainly go back there if I was leaving town. I'm going, uh, the set with the pearl handles there, and the, that that's my set. So give yeah. me that. You know, you be all the best guns would always be taken because if they're going to give them to anybody because they don't keep track of who has what gun. <laughs> It's like the lost. It's like in the lost weekend when Ray Milland is trying to get his coat back, and he has to wait for the for, for Jane Wyman's character to come out to then switch coats and whatnot. He'd be furious at this stand. He would not last because his bourbon bottle would be stuck in one of the holsters like that. Well, and then the fact that this whole film is based on a specific gun, and that mm-hmm. specific gun has a huge meaning. I would have loved it if if Lynn would have instead of taking the gun with him like he does, and then gets attacked and we'll get in all that yeah but if he would have just said oh i'll just put it in the gun room along with all the other guns and then anybody could have taken it like oh yeah oh where is it that's mine give that to me yeah all these are just regular hand pistols but that one's shiny and long (laughs) like that that's like that's the one thing i noticed like most of the guns that they're dealing with are not long-range rifles or like and i don't know if that term is correct so 
I don't really care, guys. It's a gun. <laughs> but one's a big gun, and the other ones are small hand guns. And yeah. so, like, I'm like that's the way he's kind of visually discerning them. But, yeah, it's such a, like, weird hodgepodge and whatnot. And these two and, characters, the two main characters, are the, are the, that, you know, Lynn and his buddy. Every place they go, they're the only cowboys I've ever seen that constantly, whenever they, they're walking anywhere or whatever, they have their rifles they carry with them every time. So it's never just... They've got their they've got their their six shooters, their pistols on them, but they also are constantly having their their rifles because the rifle becomes such a big thing in this movie mm-hmm. that that they're always carrying them. I mean, very seldom do you see uh, uh, John Wayne walking around with a rifle. I mean, he'll do it, but generally speaking, he just ha- he's got his pistols and the rifle stays on the horse or whatever. And so- I've either got a pistol or I've got my hips in my hands. That's right. <laughs> Like, well, and then when, and then what we were gonna say so they they get their guns taken away and then when they run into each other in the mm-hmm. bar and they see each other for the first time Ooh, neither of them has stare. guns on mm-hmm. and so they grab air at the sides of their like they're drawing because it just shows us that they immediately will be trying to kill each other if they had the the means to do it. which i think is a brilliant way to sh- i mean they certainly they had to go through some strange uh, contortions to get this to happen but but they've got it where no one in the town has a gun so when they see each other the immediate and they're so used to having guns they immediately try and draw their guns yeah instead of just trying to beat each other senseless or something um and so Which, it shows the the viciousness they have for each other and they establish that the moment they see each other which i what, think is, is yeah and I love what follows with that after the competition is over and and Dutch Henry steals the gun from Lynn. Because I love a good fist fight in the Old West. I like it, it, Gunplay is whatever. Like, it, 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 I expect it. But I like seeing a good fist fight in a Western because that's, like, dirty brawling. Like, that's, like, that's, that's unconscionable, unrefereed brawling. And those scenes, like, all those scuffle scenes, I loved in the interview when... Uh, Stewart talked about man as a director because one of the things that popped out to me as man's style is that man was clearly confident in his crew. And I love when a director is confident in their crew because he basically, the way he intimates it is that like man trusted the stunt crew enough to let the stunt crew figure out what would work. They would do it. And then man would decide if it's what he wanted or if he wanted to change things, which is good because you let the creative forces around you build upon what you are forming. And like that's that's the sign of a great collaborator. And it also, to some extent, might explain why man is not talked about as often as somebody like Ford. Ford was very demanding, uh, very um, uh, insistent on what he wanted, whereas man seems a little bit more cooperative. Um, yeah. and, and I appreciate seeing that, not just with the scuffle that gets the gun taken away, but also the scenes that follow, and specifically anything involving a big major battle scene, because the the battle scenes in this film which the f- primary one would probably be young bull's siege on the, the calvary is very uh not scattershot but it's definitely like assembled in bits and pieces in a way that maybe ford wouldn't be doing like the angles vary from time mm-hmm. to time but it also means he's giving the 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 people on horses whether it's the uh the the when it when you have the when you have young bull siege like the angles vary on where they're being like 
attacked or where they're attacking from, which would send Orson Welles up a wall because he claimed that the way he saw stagecoach and learned how to direct was looking at the Indians going right to left. So like, I think that this, this, this shows his ability to kind of wrangle with several different scenarios, but keep the intimacy focused. He's not. Well, I, I think what's interesting too with this is in this film, I think what carries the action scenes for me and, and they, some, I've never seen anybody do it quite as much as Anthony Mann seems to do it. And I don't know if it's accidental or purposeful or whatever, but other, 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 um, other folks seem to do it. I, I guess the one that stands out the most is doing something like I'm going to be talking about is is uh, um, Bruce Willis in Die Hard, the original Die Hard, oh. where where things feel like they're improvised and not like this is a a, a thought out. We're going to make this, this is going to be a fight scene and we're going to do it like a traditional fight scene and the guys get together and this sort of happens. It's it's more yeah. like life. It's where it's happenstance that you end up, okay, you're in a room, there's some uh, uh, construction equipment, you're going to grab that and use that, use whatever you have because you got to fight this guy that you didn't know you were going to fight two minutes ago, you just bumped into him and, and this is what's happening. In this case of this, he comes into a room there's a guy that's 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 try, that's that's waiting behind the door. At, there's two guys trying to get him, and so he does. He tries to take them both on somewhat, and he ends up um, pushing one of them or hitting them or whatever. But not a lot like with a with a what seems like a knockout blow or anything. And then he focuses on his brother, who is the main one he wants to attack anyway or wants to deal with. And he's in the position of being on top of his brother with the gun in between them. Yeah. Where it looks like he would have all the power and the strength in that scene and be the dominant person. And it would take a lot for his brother to get the most of that situation. So you immediately, my brain, I think, oh, the guy that's behind him that he's just knocked over or whatever is going to come back and smack him on the head with his gun and knock him out. That's 90% of the time what we see in a scenario like this. Yeah. But it doesn't happen that way. What happens is, is arresting for the gun and his brother get even from the bottom is able to push himself up and swing back around and get on top and then and then uh jimmy stewart's on the bottom at that point and and uh it, it just shows how they weren't afraid to make his brother just seem more physically imposing than lynn's character seems to be yeah um, and and you you're bringing up organic and our an organic nature and that and that's that's a better way to describe man's um man's approach and i'm I'm glad you brought that up because it does feel real it doesn't feel staged it's like ford stages stuff right and he blocks stuff really well if you can surprise the audience and Mm -hmm. create a situation where something is they've seen it before so they know though this is what's going to happen and then you don't do that and you do something different it really stands out for the audience as as it's like one of those things in your brain where you're just like oh this is a surprise and it makes the whole film go, you go, oh, this whole film might be a surprise. It might be surprised in this film as to what's going to happen. And yeah. you don't realize that it opens your brain in that way because you're just conditioned to, oh, he's going to get hit on the head. That's just what's going to happen. And he, and that doesn't happen in this scene. Um, that, it happens a completely different way. That's how I felt about the Joe Lamont scene um, because it doesn't play out the way I think it would play out because they, they, they get to uh, they, they get to Riker's post 
um, D- uh, uh, Dutch Henry, played by, played by the way, by St- Stephen McNally, who I'm not extremely familiar with. Um, but he he's a, a good job in this. Yeah, he is. He was in Johnny Belinda. He's in um, Criss Cross. Uh, so he did noir and western. Um, he um, he's in the Patton Prayer um, as George S. Patton. Like he's he he kind of just wor- he was a work he was a workman actor. Like he yeah. he's in Gunsmoke um, in the episode The Lure. Um, so he's, he's I mean no it's, definitely, it's, it's one of those if you're a person who watches a lot of film and a lot of television, you'll recognize the actor when he comes on the screen. You'll be like, oh, I've seen him before, and he plays the heavy most of the time. It seems like yeah, and he's um he's um he was on the show um the Vir- um uh the man from Shiloh the re- that was rebranded as the Virginian, and mm-hmm. uh, which obviously if you've watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that's referenced a ton. Um, and uh, but he his his him and his posse get to Riker's post um, with Riker, by the way, played by John Charge Alexander from Arsenic and Old Lace um, mm-hmm. and Joe Lamont. And Lamont is this gun trader who's about to trade guns with Young Bull um, and he's waiting for them. And we we get the conversation about. You know, like not not trusting the Native Americans and like seeing that that smoke means that there's danger afoot. But then the actual danger is coming from 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 uh, Dutch Henry and his gang. The scene plays out like a Quentin Tarantino scene does today. It plays off of the idea like we know that we know what's at stake. They need guns. And we know that Joe is not going to give up the guns, but there's the caveat that he sees the Winchester and is intrigued by it. Mm -hmm. And so my brain goes to, okay, there's going to be a scuffle immediately. They're just going to take these guns. No, it ends up turning into a card game Mm -hmm. that then escalates into the final brawl, which is intercut by the way, with Lynn and uh, Lynn and high spade travailing the Western uh, frontier um, in pursuit of Dutch Henry and having really discussions about life and whatnot, which is like a nice meditative form. Yeah. And, it, and it, and it leads you, I think it, it allows you to believe Stewart's characterization of Lynn because he does kind of like, he speaks softly. He's not like he chooses his words carefully. He's not as, animated as a high spade frankie is and so like he's a little bit he's you you get right off the bat that he's much calmer he's much more collected the gun is unimportant to him but his focus on dutch henry is important to him (laughs) he's focused on his goal the the minimalist dialogue from lynn combined with the way stewart is outwardly portraying that allows you to believe that darker persona that Stuart is inhabiting and it pays off down the line, especially, but going well, back, let's, let, can I dovetail on that really quick? The, yeah, absolutely. The, yeah. Um, what you said there about the fact that it's minimalist dialogue is uh, in the soundtrack of this or in the, the commentary uh, by Stewart, he yeah. brings up the fact that they were going to put it on um, Lux Radio Theater. And from his recollection, they didn't do it on Lux Radio Theater because there was no dialogue. And they said, that's all we do is dialogue in radio. I mean, we don't have pictures to go along with it, so we can't do this. Right. Film. 
I think what really happened, because he, and he says at the time, he knew already that what he'd said was probably wrong because he, he said, he said, well, here's the way I've always related it. And I've heard other things, but this, and so he relates it that same way that I just described. But the reality is they did do a Lux Radio Theater of it. He just can't remember doing it. And so, so they, they did it with him, with Lux, with uh, Winchester 73 and the whole thing. Um, but I think what happened is my guess is that they had a dialogue with him at some point saying this is a hard one to do because there's not a whole lot of dialogue and it's hard to get across what's going on right. on the screen throughout the thing. But they went ahead and did it. And so he was remembering that they didn't do it. But, he, but what he's really remembering is probably the dialogue they had about how it'd be hard to do. So it does exist. So if you hear him talking about, you know, that they never did a Lux for this. Yeah. They did do a Lux for this. And, uh, and, and that's one thing that, that I didn't review before hearing this, before doing this. I mean, yeah. I've played it before and I've, I've listened to it before and it's pretty good. It's a pretty good rendition of the, of the movie. Um, of course, it's always interesting to hear the Luxes because you're, you're one, losing the visual element of the film. And right. two, you're dropping it down to, to 60 minutes instead of however long the film is. Yeah. So it just depends on how long the film is, how much you're cutting it, which also makes like some of the other shows, there was in, in radio, just for our folks that don't know much about radio uh, history, radio was a friend to film mm. and considered a friend to film. And so they would release the, the film oftentimes before it ever was, the film was actually released they would put it on radio and so that they would be kind of an advertisement for going to see the film. Yeah. They didn't yeah. think people would listen on the radio and then not see the film. So they were very comfortable with that. They would use that as kind of a form of advertisement. So you'd have, you'd have Lux that would create a version of the film in audio format, usually with multiple actors that were actually in the film. And then they, they'd play that out. And then it'd be like the film's coming out next month or whatever. And so then go catch the film. Um, and they didn't only do it on Lux, they did it on, on other shows too, Screen Guild Theater and so forth, where they would... Director's Playhouse and um, yeah. Ford Theater. But, the, yeah. but almost all of the other ones were like a half hour long. So those are even, to me, more interesting to see how you're going to fit this film into a half hour format. Because you're really chopping it, you're getting down to the absolute minimalist approach. I mean, I guess you could say we could do a 15 minute version and see what you get. But I mean, a half hour is pretty short. But I mean, like things like um, my favorite from Jimmy Stewart is probably his, um, he did it on Lux, but then he also did it for Screen Guild Theater. He did It's a Wonderful Life. And Screen Guild Theaters, I, I just love because it is, um, or, or maybe it was a screen actor, screen actors theater. Anyway, it was one of those shows. Yeah, it was one of those. But, yeah. but he did, but he did, but he did um, his It's a Wonderful Life. And so they, one, had to get it down to a half hour, which is yeah. amazing. Two, instead of uh, the actor they had play Clarence was, can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he's Elmer Fudd. And he oh, um, plays uh, it uh, in uh, Elmer uh, Fudd's Arthur, voice. Arthur Quimby, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So he does, he does, so essentially you hear Clarence as Elmer Fudd doing this thing with, with Jimmy Stewart. Oh, Arthur Q. Arthur Q. Bryan. Sorry, Arthur Q. Bryan. That's yeah. Arthur Q. Bryan. Yeah. And and uh, it, it is the 
funniest, most interesting, strange juxtaposition of things to listen to. It makes it such an interesting listen that I would suggest you go out and find that and listen to it. I've done it on my podcast multiple times. If anything else, go to my podcast and do a search for It's a Wonderful Life, and I'm sure it'll pop up, and then you can listen to that. See, George Bailey, you had a lot of influence. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what it's like. So That's insane. And I... I when we're talking about like dialogue in particular and the, and the way they would cut these things down for radio in particular, it, it circles back to Stewart's insistence on the Western as a visual medium. And that one of the things he attributes to man is, is that he's able to tell the story without a lot of dialogue. I think Stewart really respects any director who's able to pull this off visually rather than spokenly because yeah. he loved working with Hitch. He loved working with Hitch and Hitch was primarily known for what he did in silence rather than what he did with talking. And right. so I I I find it interesting that this is a through line with Stewart. Like he will he will latch on to a director if he's seeing that the visual medium is being represented first. Because it also makes him look good as an actor right. too, because it provides the moments that critics will look upon in awe of somebody playing out something in their head right. or motivating themselves through body language rather than dialogue. But that, to bring it to back to Riker's pose for a second, that scene is dialogue that fuels tension. And what I what I like about it in from a visual standpoint, there are a couple of angles that I wasn't a fan of, but overall, we're playing off of that same tension that you will see somebody like Tarantino pull down the line in his westerns or even in inglorious bastards when they're in the um when they're in the the um the cabaret the 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 bar before the the big old standoff like that that amount of tension he knows how to space it out yes and when it when the whole when the whole conflict culminates in joe getting the gun and going off to his deal with young bull um we're left with this situation that starts to a slow simmer and then yep. explodes and it's fantastic to watch and well i want to say that you're brilliant in 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 comparing quentin tarantino to anthony mann and and these i as you were talking about that i was like oh that is perfect there's yeah. nobody i mean quentin tarantino is not alfred hitchcock Quentin Tarantino (laughs) is not, you know, John Hughes and he's not, he's not John Ford and he's not, but man, he, he, he's very similar to Anthony Mann, at least. And and his, and his pictures, I could totally see him redo a shot for shot essential remake of this film, adding more creative dialogue and more uh, colorful language to it probably. Yeah. But his Quentin Tarantino does that. But this film That's is fucking totally right, man. not like a like a Quentin Tarantino film. Um, uh, yeah, I, mean, I can't think of anything that's closer to it, really. Yeah, the hateful Quentin. the hateful eight would be my primary draw if you want something that's pretty much like visually on point from the Western standpoint, because the hateful eight has a lot of moments like that where yes. we're dealing with you're you're in one location, so you're dealing with that as your limitation. But you have isolated incidents within the within the uh, the uh, within Minnie's uh, st- haberdashery that right. that play into that same tension when they go. Well, out, I'd say even even to me, Pulp Fiction can mm. can tie into this because because you have so many scenes that are happening with different people 
that have different and and it all comes together eventually yeah. but and that's where this has so many scenes that are all over the place whether they're, they're with an indian attack or whether it's uh the suitcase you know, the suitcase in pulp fiction marcellus right. wallace's dirty laundry that that's what i yeah. think's in there, there you um go. like because I, I i take it literally and i'm just like yeah they said it's his boss's laundry it's it's marcellus's underwear but yeah. um um but they but joe gets to like we'll we'll move along with joe getting to young bull and i we yes. have to bring this up for a couple reasons number one it is rock hudson um as young bull and yes. um uh within that we we do need to bring up because this show deals with contextual nature uh, rock hudson playing a native american is 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 just absolutely unacceptable by today's standards um right. but uh, really yeah. if you're going to show respect to native americans his way of presenting it it's a very noble sort of right way that he's presenting he he does not come across as your savage Indian or something like no, that. No, in, in fact, this and the Furies brought up something interesting to my mind, and this is another thing you could point into the Tarantino camp to respect, or even more appropriately toward a more modern aesthetic, which is the the idea of the atrocities of white men in the West are perfectly exemplified in both the Furies and in Winchester. Now, the key thing to keep in mind, though, is, is that they're insulated and kept to a minimum rather than um in winchester compared to the furies because in the furies you're dealing with a hispanic family that lives on the furies land and it actually pays off at the end that they get revenge on 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 tc but in this one it's relegated really to one speech because young bull is one of many characters in the film but i love that he he points out the atrocities that the white man has imposed on his people mm-hmm. and it's not treated as villainous. It's treated as matter of factly like right. man, man is not vilifying in the same way that John Ford would vilify. No. And I, and I would argue that you're saying this is one scene or one speech or whatever that, that carries this. I would say there are two, I would say there's this speech. And then I think that the conversation that they have about Custer and the fact that that the the Native Americans knew mm-hmm. that they had single shot rifles and the way that they attacked, I think gives them, uh, it makes it seem like they're not just savages. They are, they are thoughtful, they are good tacticians and, and the Native Americans are, are, have uh, a thoughtful approach and they're not haphazard. And I thought that was, it makes it seem like, I don't know, somehow more, um, less savage and more planned and more thought out and that they have, they've been, there's been atrocities on them and they're just lashing out at the people who've, who've attacked them more. It's, it's, it's thoughtful. It's not treat, it's not treated as, uh, it's, it's not treated as, um, lowering the intelligence or the cultural appreciation the way arguably Ford does in several of his Westerns up to a certain point. And I feel like the difference between this and The Searchers is that this film is much more thoughtful about what it's doing than The Searchers. I think The Searchers is dealing with a raw, uh, raw raw-fueled rage 
whereas mm-hmm. man is tempering that to logical levels. And right. I think that that's the difference between personalities as well as film technique. And right. when we get the attack, we're also we, we should introduce Shelley Winters in here because she's been sitting off to the side for a little bit here. But and she actually even she even said something about the uh, making of the film. She said, like, here you've got all these men running around to get their hands on this goddamn rifle instead of going after a beautiful blonde like me. What does that tell you about the values of that picture? If it hadn't been, if I hadn't been in it, would any would anybody have noticed? And I'm like, you're Shelly Winters. I would have noticed. But, yeah. <laughs> like, um, I, the only time where I feel like you are relegated to one section is probably Night of the Hunter, and it's for good reason because you catapult a lot of the plot but right. um but yeah we we have shelly winter she was at the saloon in dodge city mm-hmm. she played she, she and i would argue that she's very similar to the gun she's a linking piece that ends mm-hmm. up it, interacting with everybody in the film more than they uh, she's probably the one actor in the film that gets a chance to interact with almost everyone in the film at some point or another Including Steve Miller, the the biggest coward on this planet. Yes, <laughs> he's she's engaged to Steve, who Steve is gonna go off to meet uh, to meet Waco Johnny, Waco Johnny Dean, <laughs> which is like the that's that's the name of a breakfast product somewhere. Waco Johnny <laughs> Dean, um, but uh, he uh, to to pull off a deal of sorts. So Steve is not only a coward, but he's a criminal. And they fall upon a cavalry unit, which leads to the big blowout. But Stuart and Lola engage in conversation on the trail, and we establish the hint of a love story that's here. The loves, there's a love story that doesn't really matter here in this movie. It's, it's there to provide some kind of romantic relief to a very dark story. Um, and by the end of the whole battle, the gun gets lost again and falls into the hands of steve so everybody parts ways and steve takes it with them uh with them into um uh into the into the next town where i love how how jimmy stewart's character rides within looks like within six feet or eight feet of the gun as he's as he's leaving and doesn't see it of course and and it's and it's like then they call to him they find it immediately after he's headed off a little bit but he's just out of earshot where they can't yell to him and say hey we got the gun I mean, they try but he doesn't yeah they they, they, they they yeah like i was or missed it by that much as don adams would say yes. my good friend don <laughs> adams um and uh but they they go to they go to the town to meet with waco johnny dean and we find ourselves in the middle of a siege um with uh the with the lawmen trying to smoke out waco johnny dean and we right. get a tense modern day Western scene stuck in this film in 1950 with Waco Johnny Dean being the creepiest of all creeps and Steve very much being, uh, having his masculinity as it's described here stripped away. And, uh, with, with the culmination of it being this, this brutal shot, of him um there's first one where he he's serving uh lola and waco coffee and he trips him and he falls into the camera view Mm -hmm. um and then steve gets shot after he tries to pull the rifle on waco and 
so it's like the the gun almost kind of gives him like it it expounds upon his ability to take a stand or to say enough's enough and by the time he does it's I mean, too his, late. The gutsiest thing he did was when Waco Johnny Dean just said he would pay any price, name a price, make it high and and uh, cuz I'll pay whatever you want for it. Mm-hmm. And he's like no, it's not for sale, I'm not selling it. That was probably the toughest stance he ever took in the whole film. But it didn't last long. I mean it was it was it was right away you could and and, and that's the beauty Dan Durie just does such a good job as as Waco Johnny Dean, right? Um, in that you can see in his brain his gears turn and be like, okay, he won't give him to me that way. I'm gonna have to kill him or whatever, and so I'm gonna make him draw on me. And uh, which is such a strange thing. How 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 again you get this this strange Western um, moral view of things. It's like I'm a bad guy. You would think. I want the gun. He won't give me the gun. Fine. I'll shoot him. Boom. He's dead. Uh, I, I I tend to think that's maybe what Tarantino would have done is more of the, that direct line. But in this case, he's like, no, I can't do that. You got to have him draw on me. So I've got to ridicule him enough that I'm going to get him to the point where he's going to draw on me and then I'll kill him. And that's exactly what he does. Yeah. yeah. I think like if Tarantino were to do this scene, you'd have a different catalyst involved in the scene within the scene here though. Like, yeah, if it was the difference between one weapon versus another or like getting the weapon, like it would be more of a straight line, but man diverts it and diverts it in a way that strips Steve of any dignity that he could have possessed. Like this is a character who literally bolted from the scene of an oncoming attack and then turned around and told, and told Lola to hightail it over to the cavalry unit. Once he figured out there was a safe place to go before he knew that, essentially he was that whole thing of, well, if you're being chased by a bear, you just got to be faster than the other person you're with. Right. And then they'll get eaten by the bear and not you. He's with his with this girl, and he's like, "Okay, I'll leave her behind, and the Indians will go attack her or do whatever they're going to do, and I'll get a, I'll maybe get away. It's my best chance." But then, as soon as he sees, "Oh, the cavalrys are just over the other hill," I can go back, double back, and get her, and maybe pull this off. And so then and he the, does, and and, and, and the difference and the difference between him trying to find safety for her and doing what he does is that he's acting out of self preservation and not out of heroism as it's defined by screenwriting or writing in general so like you you get this cowardly like this cowardly demeanor that ultimately means his demise and it means that waco johnny dean has now whisked off lola to uh to to meet up with whoever he's supposed to meet up with and who's he gonna meet up with to talk about this task tascosa texas job why it's dutch henry and he's and they've met up at this isolated uh, this isolated house out in the hills and uh they're going over the plan and that's when Shelley sees a picture on the wall and it's of Dutch Henry an older man and what land <laughs> and that's when we get the brother connection now yes. i like that he he tells it visually without saying that we don't say a damn word um, we have we have Dutch alluding to him, but we don't we don't utter the phrase brother. 
For all yeah. we know, it could be like a neighbor thing or whatever. Like we don't get any specifics, but we all we need to know is they are connected, right. and something happened involving that old man. And well, and and for me, I mean, I, I think for a lot of audience members, it's enough of a connection that they're like, okay, they must be brothers. I mean, I think yeah. that's at least crossing your mind for a lot of people because. How often do you have pictures of other people in your home and, th- and in the 1800s too? Like it's not yeah. like it's not like they were like, "Hey, let's get a selfie between me and this guy I met at the bar and this old man who we also <laughs> met." Like True. this is yeah. not. Yeah, you're right. That like photographs were like were not something as common as sticking an iPhone in your face today. Like right. you got a photo because it was a proper family picture or. Mm-hmm. A mil, uh, like a, a, an organization taking its photo for posterity or even war photography, I guess, to an extent, which, by the way, we should bring up that like if there's one problem I have with Lynn as a character, because I, I don't really like this in Westerns, like he's a Confederate hero and it's the but they don't expound upon the whole lost cause thing in here with his Confederacy. It's used more as a joke um, with uh, Sergeant Wilkes than anything else because they have this actually wonderful conversation about uh, about bull run and well, then you get the revelation i was gonna i was hoping we could take it back to that because yeah I, I, we we skipped over that scene pretty uh or set of scenes this when the when the uh when they're facing down the native american the indians are going to be attacking them mm-hmm. and they're they're knowing they're going to get attacked there's so much great dialogue mm-hmm. um so much great information that's that's conveyed in there in lots of ways um, yeah i just i think it's a really rich set of scenes there that take place it builds uh, upon certainly... the characters yeah 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 because because we find out that's where we find out that they are confederate officers is at the end of that piece sort of they've mm-hmm. they've been bonding with this guy all along and he's talking about how hard it was in the war and everything and there's and there's and he's saying like you would never you know if you weren't there you wouldn't know what it's like or that sort of thing and they're like well we were there but we were on the other side yeah he 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 says something along the lines of like i wish you were at bull run with me and he's like well we were but we were on the other side so yeah gotcha psych (laughs) (laughs) and and he i mean because at that point he could have pulled out his gun and tried to shoot them or something but he just laughs it off and is like yeah well times have changed and and you've shown me over the last number of hours we've spent together in a life and death situation, how valuable you are and whatever it essentially is. And all of that comes across without any dialogue. The the amount of dialogue in these scenes and in this whole movie is not a lot, but the amount it conveys is so much, it's, it's more than like any picture I can think of where they're conveying a whole six hours worth of dialogue in an hour and a half film it's i mean it, of thoughts i'm mean, not not of yeah. dialogue it's 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 of without expressing the dialogue you can see the internal like monologue that's going on in this guy's head and and so you're sort of creating your own commentary throughout the film as you're watching it of what you think the subtext is and, which i feel like the searchers um is weak at um, compared to this film in certain respects, because I feel like the searchers takes any opportunity it can to have John Wayne expound upon how he knows Native American habits and customs for the purposes of him expounding his hate. Whereas here, we're relegated to really one line of Lynn McAdam talking about like, 
if they attack at night and are killed at night, their spirits ascend to the next to the next realm or whatever he's expounding upon. And it's not treated in the same way that John Wayne uses it with vitriol um, when they um, uh, they uh, desecrate the body so that it can't enter the spirit world. This one here, it's a little bit more matter of fact. And going back to our conversation about Young Bull, adds to the thoughtfulness. I was going to say the same thing. I didn't. I didn't think about that before. Yeah, you're right. That scene even adds to it too. And he, and all he says, like you say, he's the way he conveys it is. Yeah, they won't attack at night because they're afraid that their spirits won't go won't go to the whatever. Yeah, yeah. Describes it, and then and then at the end he says, he says some. There's some little throwaway like, either either sound he makes or is essentially saying, or or that's what they say anyway. You know, sort of thing. It's it's like a it's like a little piece at the end where he's like, he's like I'm going to explain this intimate thing about the Indians. And then I'm going to just kind of at the end go, or that's what I've heard. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and that, and that actually is all of this dialogue stuff is carried into the finale too, because they get to the, they, t- they get to Tescosa for the job and Lynn and high spade join them or, or not join them, but like they, they descend upon the town as well. And this is another example of there's a, sh- the shot, the opening shot of Tescosa is from the, point of view of the door and it circles around the town but has things in the foreground so it kind of intimates a hustling bustling environment Mm -hmm. but it's not needing like i don't need a bunch of people in the foreground or in the background and i don't need a bunch of stuff happening in the mid i'm i'm keeping it tight and i like how it kind of like it it again relays that intimacy which leads to this like brutal assault on Waco when he realizes that Dutch is Dutch is teamed up with them um, because they run into Lola and Lola basically gives them an up like a, a, a Facebook status update of like, here's where I've been the last five, like five hours or five days. And um, Jimmy beats the crap out of Waco, Johnny Dean. Mm-hmm. Like it's brutal. Yeah. I, the look on Lynn's face when he is furious is like it's like watching your if you like met the sweetest person on the planet and then suddenly they started just punching the shit out of a guy who who like accidentally ran into them like that that kind of like shift we've talked about like how Jimmy shifts his characters and whatnot or his characterizations in roles like that's I think is the starkest difference between Jimmy in the Philadelphia story to hear is that look on his face like that, that brutality that he is allowing. And he, and a lot of it is because he's allowed to be a little bit more reserved as well, a character. Until this film, I didn't even know he had that gear in him to, mm-hmm. to pop that gear and go into really angry, insanely angry mode. And, uh, and he do, he uses that, in all of these Western films from here on, he 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 can pop into that gear if he needs to. Certainly in, in Naked Spur, he he uses that yeah. more or whatever. And in some films not as much. But it's just an interesting piece. It's like um uh for another 
piece of Jimmy that you will never get in any films. And so the only way you can experience this is through his radio show. If you listen to his um, Six Shooter, which was a Western that he did in the midst of, so in the 50s, he will pop out for just a second here. In the 50s, he's linked to two directors like most actors are ever linked to maybe one director in the way that he's linked to these two. He's essentially going back and forth between doing Anthony Mann uh, films and Hitchcock films. And that's what takes place most of the, of, of the fifties for him. Right. And, and most of the Anthony Mann films are Westerns. Not all of them are Westerns. And then, and then of course the Hitchcock films are exactly what they are. They're Hitchcock's films. And so they're, yeah. They're suspenseful pieces. Yeah, yeah, the only one that's an outlier is the Glenn Miller story. I don't know what man was thinking at that point, but exactly, <laughs> I just wanted I to get say, out of the yeah, desert. He does the Glenn Miller. Is there is there another one he does? No, I guess not. I guess not. And he does I another they, western. In in the midst of all this, he's got another western that he does. As probably well a bend of the else. maybe bend of the river or something like that. Or I I, no, I, I don't know. I think is bend of the river. Is that Anthony Mann or is it not? Yeah, it is yeah. Anthony Mann. Yeah, it's Anthony Mann. So yeah, no, that he does that. It, it's the. Uh, the other Western I'm thinking of, it, it's not by Anthony Mann. It's it's somebody else that does the Western. And it's it's the story of the, uh, it's how he, it's not even a Western. It's it's sort of a Western. It's, it's how he made the 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 rifle. Uh, he, he designed a car, was it the carbine rifle? It's some, it's some mechanism that he, that he designs in prison and is designing this, this, this weapon that that becomes mainstream everywhere and becomes this huge thing and gets him paroled and everything. Um, interesting film, anyway. Um, is it Carbine Williams or something like that? I don't know. Mm, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Anyway, it, it's around the same time frame that they do that film as well. But but generally, the, the, the decades taken up with that. And then at the same time, somehow somebody talks him into 1953 because he loves radio so much to doing a Western radio series. So he does his series, and uh, and as he does the series, he develops whether it's through him or through the direction or through the writing or whatever. But he grabs it and does a good job with it. This thing of where whenever they're going to have a tense, insanely tense moment, he starts whispering everything he's going to do, and it becomes this this. So he's coming out of the house. What am I going to do? I'm going to grab my gun, I guess. And he, I think he went over to the left, I think. So I'm not, we might go over that way. You know, and it's just this, yeah. all of a sudden, this full-blown voice that he's used throughout goes goes away. And he uses this whispering voice for the, for the um, action scenes. And it works, like, really, really well. It's surprising how well it works. And it's worth hearing his radio shows just to hear him do that piece in an episode or two and then he does it in one episode and you're like okay this is a one-off thing they'll never do this again but that was interesting take on a on an action scene i've never heard anything quite like it and yet he does it in multiple not in every episode but probably in half of them he does this whispering thing um and i love it and oh and um is the movie but, carbine williams i was looking at this yeah carbine williams yeah with uh, which is directed by richard thorpe and he does that two years after this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I I appreciate how he's able to blend into those two. And he, it seems like whether it's radio or film, at this point, Jimmy is becoming more introspective. 
and it feels like he becomes more of an actor that we would see today. And I think a lot of that comes through in the final moments because we get him and Dutch facing off in the hills and yes. the angles in which man sh- chooses to shoot this. I love like it's it's a good standoff and there's the way the rocks are forming. Like I know he's not an expressionist director per se, right. but like I like how things surround. Like there's an encompassing thing that if you were to like adjust the saturation, you'd get some stark imagery surrounding him. Mm-hmm. And we get at at that point, we already know that they're brothers because High Spade looks after Lola after she's been shot trying to save a kid. And then we get we don't hear any more of the story from High Spade. We go right to the cl- to the fight at the end. Yep. And yep you brought up earlier the whole idea of like who who learned best from the old man mm-hmm. and you're hearing brotherly taunting back and forth through through all these shots and at one point i love the line he's like matthew wouldn't mind if i called you matthew I like it better than dutch <laughs> like just like this like oh burn <laughs> like that like the idea of like at the time of our deaths we're gonna like dig into each other like digging with, the knife with, with, with childhood type taunts of each other yeah. and things. I, I love that i love that whole this whole thing let me let me point out one last thing before we get into uh because we're at the very end of the film now yeah, we are we're having a shootout the only other piece of the film that i that i really want to point out is yeah back again to to the to the the indian um uh, cavalry battle thing that they have yeah uh, there's a scene with with um shelly winters where she uh, he gives her his gun lynn gives her his gun and she says she says oh, okay and 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 they look at each other oh, and don't yeah. say anything for a long time it's a long beat and then she says oh don't worry i know what to lo- use the last one for the last bullet for and um and and that means, you know, last bullet is a woman. If they're, you're going to get taken over by Native Americans, you use the last bullet to kill yourself because you're about to be scalped or whatever, or raped or uh, yeah, so forth. Which, and, which, and that's the the predominating. And, like, what's lovely is they don't even say again. It's minimalist. It they neither one neither character has to explain why. You would normally in a in a regular western, you would have him tell her that use, but only use five bullets, save the last one. You know what to use last, and they might not still tell you. They might say, "Say the last one." Mm-hmm. You know what to say last one for, and then she'd say yes or something. But the fact that she says it to him, I think, adds a whole unique twist on that scene. That we, I mean, because we've seen that before. But and then the fact that they don't even have to really talk about what it's about. Just, just she knows last bullets. You know, for me. Um, and then, and then after that. The big thing is she takes the bullet out, gives him his gun back and asks if she could keep the bullet. And that bullet keeps following her throughout the rest of the film. And she she pulls it out a couple of times. We see it a couple of different times. She's uh, like um, tossing it up and down out of the bag um, outside of um, Dutch Henry's hideout. And Mm -hmm. the and that he bring man is bringing capability into female characters the same way Hawks would. I don't think he's as focused as Hawks might be because Hawks has a very definitive female archetype that he plays with. Mm -hmm. This one's a little bit more subtle and it's a little bit more just implied naturally that she's growing up in the old West. Of course she would have to know how to take care of herself because that's how you survive out there. And the whole idea of the gun, the, what the last bullet is for 
I like that we don't need to show any of that or implicate any of that visually because like I love when they do it in um when they do visualize it in a film like um uh Ballad of Buster Scruggs with Zoe Kazan's character in um in her little story in the film but that's done for a different reason they show it because they show that she didn't need to worry about it whereas in here the stakes are portrayed as high and so therefore the weight of the words carry more than showing that visual so there is this man is aware of what will work visually and what can be implied through dialogue and through an actor's look and winters is proficient at that oh for sure well and i think what's so interesting about westerns um a unique thing about them uh and it ties into what i do which is jack benny yeah. Is that is that Jack is known for bringing things back, having ref, referencing something earlier in the episode, but also sometimes referencing something from five years earlier, ten years earlier, twenty years earlier that he brings back. Yeah, and and assuming the audience kind of realizes that the audience, if they've been watching him, kind of know this history, and so he can he can refer back, and it's a wonderful thing for longtime listeners of his show. And there's a trust he has of his audience. Yeah. Yes. But I think in Westerns, I've never really thought about this until right now, this moment, but I think it, it holds true. I think in Westerns, what's cool is when you create a Western now, you are playing with something that's been around for years, for decades and decades and decades. And you're in a way doing what Jack Benny did. You have these callbacks. If you have a scene with a woman that's where you're getting attacked by Indians, whatever, you can do some a play around with the whole last bullet thing with all of that. And people will have all this history with it. Um, certainly my family and I have been really getting into, into 1883, which is the new Western that was just done this, just released this year in the last few months. Mm -hmm. And it's a spinoff of, of Yellowstone essentially, but it takes place in the old West. Right. And it's a beautifully done series and they play with a lot of the tropes and things from westerns that we've seen they're they're going in a wagon train they're dealing with all the the things that a wagon train would have to deal with and yet they're doing it in really interesting ways and and they play a lot with with the different like i say the tropes of of all oh, these guys are all taking on this huge group and how are they going to all survive and things and uh, there's one scene i love where uh, there's three of them taking on like 12, 14, I don't know how many people. And it's like, okay, you, you're always saying to yourself, how do they get by without getting shot? Or you expect one of them to die or whatever's yeah. going to happen. And they all three get shot, but they're all shot in different ways that are not lethal. And they're <laughs> all like, the, the first one's like saying to the, the second one, boy, your luck's run out now. That's the, you know, you're, that's the luckiest I've ever seen anybody be. And then it's like, well, take off your hat. And then he takes off his hat and the guy's blood is going off. Well, you got lucky there too, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. All each one is. And I thought it was such a fun playing thing to do, but that's, what's cool about, I mean, if I was in, if I was a director or a writer or whatever, I would love to play with and bring back the Western just because there's so much history that you can play with. And there's so much, yeah, every you know they've seen Gunsmoke. There's the whole television history, and there's a whole film history, and 
I, I mean, you can argue that there's nothing new that you could do, but on the other hand, you could argue that there's echoes of a million things that you could do. And That's how I feel about the gangster film. I feel like the gangster film gets thing. thrown yeah, into exactly. that. It, that gets thrown into the same category, and I feel like no, if you have an angle on, as long as you're really sticking with the idea of a rise and fall or even to an extent like just what it is to have power on a small or right. large scale you can do so many things with that that's why i love the irishman because it decided to take a lot of those tropes and and turn it into an elegy on the gangster film to a lot of extent Except, I, uh, more specifically for and the Scorsese. sopranos as well i would say yes oh thing. yeah yeah you can what's nice too is if you if, if you embrace the new dynamics of things for both gangsters films, well, almost any genre that you have out there that's been a long-running genre, to be able to have the length to play with it in 10 episodes or 15 episodes versus just a two-hour movie, there's a lot of freedom that comes with that. And I think we, we end up with some of our best, I'd, I'd say 1883, I'd say The Sopranos. Those are amazing things that, they, that they've been able to pull off yeah. and playing with these genres that were a traditionally film was the thing or a film or a movie um but now it can broaden out to be more than that and in a lot of ways you could like you could even turn winchester 73 into a longer miniseries oh for sure you could and and you could like play with play with more like it could it could operate in a slight anthology sense so long as you like or you don't even have to have lynn as your main through line you could literally have him appear at the beginning and at the end and maybe pop up his guest appearances essentially have the the, like we're saying with the with the different not remakes, but the different ones with just a gun that follows a gun throughout. Yeah. Yeah. Have it, have each episode be focused on where the Winchester is now and what's happening with it. And yeah. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. It would be so easy to do using this as your template. And then you go, Oh, great. We have a a scene in the town. The whole, I mean, the whole first episode is, is the town piece. And then you go, okay, another episode will be uh, the, the, the piece of, of the Indian attack. And then another episode, you know, and you could just walk it through and have all these individual episodes you build out And the card game can be a whole episode. And that, man, it would be a fun, fun thing to do. Yeah. And I will say though, there is one trope within the Western that I don't think will be brought back. And it's has to do with the ending because Dutch Henry gets it in the end. And a big old dummy is just tossed off of that cliff. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those things where I'm like, I wish somebody would still throw a dummy off to indicate a body falling off. I know we have better visual effects today, but there's something fun about watching a dummy just get it on the rocks, you know, like, yeah, like because because you've believed it for so long that you do believe like, oh, he got hit on the head. Oh, he got hit on the back. Um, And I mean, the, the movie has ended at this point because we we moved back to high spade and lola and they're talking and he's going like and you know so this is what happened with the father the you know dutch henry killed the father after the father discovered that he was robin banks and and then that's what this quest has been about and we are brought to the end where lynn and lola embrace and we close in on the gun which still hasn't had its name engraved on it the the who wins the gun right. who really won the gun and there's a nice through line about who really won that gun right like that that idea of like p- the people who have been taking it at this point have been people who have opportunistically taken it lynn's the only one who actually won it and he's Correct. won it twice at this point yep. <laughs> so well and 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 let's go back to the lola character for a minute 
because there's one there's a scene earlier before the shootout happens mm-hmm. where uh she runs out to save a, a child that that needs to be saved or whatever and uh historically we're set up to kind of think through our knowledge of history of westerns and everything oh she's gonna buy the farm and and get shot and killed and that's gonna give lynn one more piece of why he needs to to kill dutch and and one more motivation that to take it over the top right but then she does she gets she gets shot but she gets shot in the arm and and Mm -hmm. so that completely was surprising to me i thought for sure she was going to die i mean it was they telecast everything that you telecast to, to say this character is going to die to give the other character motivation and yet they didn't do that and i thought that was brilliant to not do that and it was brilliant you know to set it up because in your again that was that was your brain going to one place and then them then doing a little jog at the end and you're like oh wait no we didn't do that so it kind of keeps you going not knowing what's going to go what's going to happen yeah and then the fight scene i think is interesting because there's so much um foreshadowing that takes place in that you get lynn stuck in 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 a in a position where where dutch can fire and it's and it's hitting a rock and ricocheting back and Mm -hmm. so he's almost getting hit two times every shot gets two chances to hit him and yeah. so so you're like oh man he's getting lucky by by avoiding all this and then and then with them moving around and everything we see that same position happen but now it's with his brother and 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 dutch is in that position where where he's getting fired upon and it's ricocheting and, it, and it's hitting two sides and and almost hitting him each time and then he does get hit at one point and at that point that's when he decides it looks like, okay, well, I'm probably going to die here no matter what I do. So I'm going to go out and try and take him with me essentially. Yeah. So then he goes out and does the risky shot of, of fine. Every, all the other shots we've seen in this whole fight has been kind of partially obscured or where they can't really get to each other. They're, they're well. in a safe, they're in a safer environment where it's yeah. literally just going to hit the rocks. Yeah. Yes. And then they come out and then it's just the two men standing in the open firing each other. Uh, and I think it's funny too, because because Stuart says, uh, he says, "Oh, look at you! Didn't listen to Dad. You you waste your you're wasting rounds." He, he said, "Don't waste your lead." And you've been firing. And at one point, we see see him fire like three or four shots in a row. Boom, 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 boom. And he's and and Lynn's like fires one every once in a while, right? Yeah. And so he's like he's like you're 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 short. And he says, "I'm not that short, you know, yeah. on, on rounds, you know, before having to reload." And then what's funny is he gets out in the open and you're like, well, that's going to be what, what causes him to lose this is he's going to run out of ammo or something. Right. Because they right. said he was short. They played that up, but he fires like three quick, three or four quick rounds, boom, boom, boom again, and still has more. And then, and then Jimmy Stewart fires the one shot, kills him. And that's, and he falls off the cliff and that's the end of it. But I just thought it was interesting that they, again, they went with the whole, we were building this up like he's going to run out of ammo and yet he doesn't he has plenty of ammo and he could and he even had enough to waste a bunch of shots so so in this movie again and again and again it's where they set something up and then go the other direction they they do a shot i think it's is it i i'm thinking it's lynn who gets on the low ground and um dutch says like you you didn't listen to or like you 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 
you didn't take dad's advice. Um, you're caught under a man. You don't, you, you shouldn't be caught under a man's gun. Yes. Um, that, so like they play with those expectations of who has the low ground and who has the high ground. Um, right. which it's over Anakin. I have the high ground. Thank you. Yeah. You, we all knew I was going to reference that, but, um, the, I love the idea of it all. The fight thematically centers around familial dispute. And so as a result, the, the way man choreographs it within a natural organic way is dealing with these two reckoning with the lessons of their father. One is a lot more reckless with that, with those lessons, or I, I guess another way to explain it is like one person took to heart a certain set of values from father and the other one took another sort of value from the father. Yes. And like, so it's like, it's, it's almost like, a uh, there's a difference between like, like fighting styles. Like if we were yes. talking about a martial arts movie, it's the difference between one fighting style versus another. They literally served under the same teacher and you see them conflicting with, the lessons that they took from it rather than well, and also their body styles and things too i think yeah I think, I think his brother was always dutch was the bigger of the two the stronger and he relies on that strength a lot more i mean mm -hmm. the, the whole the whole scene where they're where they're at the beginning where they're fighting over the gun in in the hotel room and who's on top and who's not on top and, and yeah and all that relates to the high ground later in the film as who's got the high ground, who doesn't have the high ground. And I think uh, that the Jimmy, Jimmy Stewart's lesson that he caught from his father was more or less, if you play smart, you can win. Yeah. Even, even if you're the underdog, you, you can pull this off. Where his brother's lesson that he got is, if I use enough brute force, I'll win each time. And I don't, I don't have to have finesse i don't have to save my bullets and i don't have to do all these things i can i can just kind of rough my way through it and uh and the lesson that's that's obviously the better lesson of the two is the stewart lesson of of pick your shot pick your time yeah you know you, uh, learn yeah, it, from it, from your mistakes and learn from the other guy's mistakes and, and take his mistakes and use them against him to, to win you know, so. it, it reminds me it, it reminds me of the thematic uh, the thematic elements discussed in the petrified forest <laughs> um, where you have um, Leslie Howard's character talking about the brute strength. This is the intellectualism. Like, it's almost like I want to watch Leslie Howard's character in that movie, watching this gunfight and be yeah. like, you know, I admire you Dutch Henry. Like, yeah. <laughs> like that. Well, and and the, the piece I want to point out that I've been, that I, it's great. We, we came yeah. back to it. It's, it's the only thing out of this whole thing that I, that I, that we've skipped that I've wanted to talk about a little more was back at the gunfight at the beginning when they're when they're having the contest to win the Winchester, right? Yeah. We already talked about how they were moving them back and they said, oh, well, we can move back to the next town and you guys will still be hitting bullseyes. So then that gives them the argument to switch to the coin. So right. they switch to the coin and they're flipping up the coin. And so far, uh, Jimmy Stewart's character has shown us that he can shoot that coin. He shot it twice already. Right. And right. Dutch's character, we, they made it clear that he didn't hit a direct shot on his, but he did hit it. He did hit the coin at one point. Right. So then, so then somehow Jimmy Stewart says, all right, I'm going to put this stamp on here. If I shoot through the stamp, you won't even need to shoot. If I miss it, you win. If I hit it, I win. And yeah. we're done. And so it creates an end to the situation. But I'm like, 
why would you accept that? He's shown he can hit it twice already. The odds that he's going to hit it a third time are really, really high. But but uh, then he they throw it up and, and he hits it, of course, and then he wins the gun that way. But again, it shows that he's outsmarting his brother. It's not by necessarily being the best shot. It's it's by adding in just the negotiation, the 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 piece of of if I hit this. I win automatically, right? If I don't hit it, you win automatically. But but it still puts me in control of the situation. And it and it actually creates a gambit for the characterization itself because up to this point, we we can tell that they're at odds. And when you hear him make a boast that big or a bet that big, you mm-hmm. are thinking, well, maybe Stewart's character is a little reckless, but the very action being carried out to success indicates intelligence. And that's where your brain starts working into the idea of like, this is intelligentsia versus like it's, it's, it's brute force versus intelligentsia to a certain respect. Yeah. And you're, you are getting, you're being thrown in a couple of directions because, because we don't know much about these characters in the gunfight, apart from their prime motivations, we learn about the characters because of their decisions rather than because of anything they say. And all that we get afterward in the form of backstory and explanation is just adding to the richness of what we've already seen. It's a good example of like how a screenwriter is best suited diving into the material right away and then expounding upon stuff. Like it's uh, like, I'll, I'll use the Batman that just came out as an example. Like that movie just, starts right in on a detective mystery and then you learn more about bruce wayne as batman at this point in his time in gotham you're not you're not being ridden with the story again of you know give me your money thomas wayne no bang dead like you 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 are being treated to the world as it already exists and but then we, we get to learn pearls scattered everywhere we, i know i know how pearl to, i want to play the pearls we, we need slow-mo pearls or otherwise i don't understand how bruce wayne doesn't have any parents <laughs> see and again that is something i would play with if i was doing a batman film i'd have some other person in pearls and have the pearls go flying everywhere that, <laughs> that, you know just random person <laughs> so what is this pamela ivy oh okay <laughs> um but that is the end of the film um an anthony mann film uh, a, a universal release this film made money lots of money for jimmy the 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 tallied total estimates because of his profit profit participation basically what jimmy got in that contract which was negotiated by lou wasserman by the way the one the legendary lou wasserman he got theoretically very little right if if this movie had been a flop if both his films had been a flop i don't think he would made much money off of either one no 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 he would have been like he would have petered out at like an even keel but he uh, the the 50% of the profits amounted to about $600,000 in 1950 money in his pocket and the the contract gave him control over the director and co-stars so he has a say in how everything functions and i you know we've talked a lot about how the western genre itself is influential and how it's influenced films today as well as films in its immediate future but like the big a big takeaway from this is that this is one of the beginnings of a star having control over their over their par- participation this isn't a post 7 year contract 
Claw's world that de Havilland, Olivia de Havilland helped dismantle. And people like Cary Grant also benefited from this early on. Like, actually, Grant was independent before Jimmy was. But Jimmy, I, I think, would ar- arguably have been one of the forebearers of really, like, g- getting that kind of a deal solidified. Like, uh, whereas I think Grant didn't do par- profit participation right away. But I know I know he would get control of his films. Like, that was one of the stipulations in his contract. But, like... Stewart gets this kind of control that really you start to see form out of the biggest stars in Hollywood at a certain point past the 80s, where you have people like Robert De Niro having a slice of the pie or Brad Pitt having a slice of the pie or the most recent and best example would probably be Robert Downey Jr. and what he was negotiated into to stay on in the Avengers universe up into Endgame. And... It also shows the formation of things that then have to be fought for in the case of Scarlett Johansson with the Black Widow scenario with profit participation and how it was fucked up because of COVID. And as a result, Disney, yeah, and Disney didn't follow their contract because they claimed that streaming has no numbers, but it does. And so (laughs) it's like, there's no way to track how successful this movie is. I'm like, you literally put a price model into purchasing the advanced screenings of this film on your streaming service. There's a way to track your money. Yeah. Um, but um, so, but that's an example of a star taking control of their circumstances. And it, it's also the difference in some respects between how, po- how powerful Stuart would become versus all the other actors in this film who are, with the exception of Shelley Winters and maybe Dan Durier, like primarily just workman actors who, you know, and Dan Durier is, but like I th- I'd argue well, Durier's name Tony is bigger. Curtis, so, yeah. Uh, I, oh yeah, Tony. Yeah, I was mentioned Tony Curtis. He had like a a tiny part of this film. But I was here. I was here. You didn't see me. I was I was because I went under the name Anthony. You see, instead of Tony. There's a big difference yeah. between Anthony and Tony. Um, <laughs> but I played Don. Yeah, everybody remembers Doan, the most memorable character in Winchester 73. If I remember, I think he was the guy that found the gun Uh uh, uh, that was left in the battlefield or whatever. Yes, he is. And said, can he keep it? And and he's told, no, no, some lieutenant will just take it from you anyway. So we'll give it to all these guys. Fine, I guess I'll just put on Greek robes. (laughs) (laughs) Or put on a dress later on for Mr. Wilder. Now, um, Now, the reception to this film, though, was highly enthusiastic. Um, the The... I like quoting from Bosley Crowther of the New York Times because he's always seems to be the biggest like I never know what the heck he's going to say because he seems to hate everything that I love. But he loved this movie. He he, he quite enjoyed the film. I'd say um, it was one of those key films in revitalizing the, the whole Western yeah. industry and, and, and like again, making leading the path for films like Shane and films like the searchers and so many of the films we got yeah the other thing i, I was going to throw out here in just a little bit we have left is to say that uh if you watch like you were saying watch destry rides again you watch this film and you watch who sh- the man who shot liberty valance mm-hmm. you get three completely different takes on the western yeah hero or the west by jimmy stewart is completely three different roles one being the true cowboy one being like a city cowboy-ish and then the other one being in a cowboy film but not being the cowboy person being the politician or the 
businessman sort of thing trying to deal with what it was like dealing with western characters at the time yeah uh, you, so I you, think those are three different and interesting takes on it and in a sense you get another evolutionary point like you can watch the progression correct and and you get this and him as an actor and him, and him as the characters too yeah I agree. yeah and actually you brought up in bringing that up and it's a good way to wrap this up to uh, a large degree is that jimmy stewart his personality is so attached to his early career that the thing that made him most successful in the 50s and 60s has not really been a part of the imitation world of Jimmy Stewart or the homage world of Jimmy Stewart. When we think of Jimmy Stewart, we think of like the model boy next door uh, everyman. But the things that made him super popular in the 50s and 60s had more to do with him subverting that. And it's weird yes. because Liam Neeson has had that. And other actors have had this too where they sure. shift, well, where they I, shift I their career. You know? For an actor, for, for any actor in the history of film, yeah, you give me the 15-year period of Jimmy Stewart from, say, 1946. You catch, have the, have have uh it's a wonderful life be the beginning of that and run it for the next 15 years that's the most interesting 15 years that probably any actors ever put in the, in the yeah. widest diversity he's in so many different films in that 15 year period and it's just wonderful the only person i can think of that comes close is if you grab tom hanks career from yeah. say from say a philadelphia story or maybe right before that philadelphia story just philadelphia. Uh, so, uh, uh, um uh the one where he plays the gay character. That yeah, gets yeah, 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 yeah. Philadelphia. Philadelphia, just Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. And then and and then follow that up for the next like fifteen years. You have this really interesting time span for him as well with Forrest mm -hmm. Gump, with with all his uh, the West. I mean the the his his uh, films that are the the World War Two sort of films with the. At, at one point, he played a character with dead eyes in the Polar Express. He just had no eyes; like it was just, yeah, they were right. just completely still. They just did so, nothing. And that includes that too. Yeah, so there's a, <laughs> he could play uh, dead and alive. <laughs> yeah, uh, I would. I would take those uh, 10, 15 years from those actors, and every film you'd be entertained with, and every film is quite different from every other film, and, and it's it's just a wonderful time in both of their careers. I'm glad that you brought Tom Hanks up, because he is seen as the successor to the Stuart throne in a lot of yeah. respects, and, I, and yeah. I think with great gusto it's weird whenever he i love though when and and i love when jimmy does this too but like when they do stuff you won't expect like with jimmy i think rope is the one that i wasn't expecting out of him when i first saw rope um and like consequently when tom hanks post the philadelphia career turn when he goes into black comedy mode i really like i i'm a big fan of his lady killers remake uh the one that mm -hmm. the cohen's helmed i know yeah. that's not a big fun film for everybody especially fans of the original ealing film but i love him playing into dark comedy and he does it sparingly in that 15 year span oh, and but sure. it shows the diversity as you were talking about because like this is a gentleman who will go from lighter comedy to sincere drama with spielberg at the drop of a hat and right. like and jimmy jimmy bounced around different personas all of his career he his versatility is underestimated and it's weird because my my opinion of him has grown over the last three years because i always thought of him as the archetype and the more i dig the more i realize like no this is one of our most 
charismatically versatile actors because he's able to draw you in with his natural charm but then he's able to push that wherever he wants to go he is he's not bound by your expectations of him he will no no and i think it's interesting that that hanks is sort of in that period of his career where jimmy stewart was in in like the 70s where it's it's the the part of his career where jimmy stewart was doing airplane 77 and jimmy stewart was doing uh the shootist and Mm -hmm. things that where he wasn't necessarily the main character in things but he was an important character and 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 that sort of thing whereas whereas hanks in the modern world and with him having the pull that he still has he's still able to find like if not leading roles really close to a leading role where he's playing now the the character the the uh mr rogers character and the walt disney character and the uh really powerful characters that carry the the emotional heart at least of the films that he's in if not the complete lead that he was before or or um, he's or he's getting into the characters that like uplift the main the real main character like him playing ben bradley in the post it, mm-hmm. you have you have him kind of in that supporting realm and in a this is a dumb example, but like when Jimmy Stewart plays Wyatt Burp and freaking Fievel goes west, you know, it's supporting yeah. Fievel. And like, yeah. and I, I feel like, I feel like Hanks has found himself in, in that same respectability that Stewart has as an overall. Yes. And that, that's a, that's something that you don't see that much today. That is one thing Correct. you don't see. I would see. agree. I, he's the only actor I can think of that's kind of in his, realm i mean he he is a movie an star. elder jimmy stewart an elder john wayne whatever it is where you, where you were happy to get this person in your film yeah and there's not too many like him that you can think of um in in, in that same way um i no, can't think of anybody off the top i mean of i think brad pitt has that to an extent um well but i'd say but brad pitt is in a different stage of he, his career still he's still getting those can get those lead parts and he's still in you know theoretically the his prime but it's the end of his prime but it's still he's in a different phase it'll he's be interesting still- where brad pitt is in 15 years yeah uh, that that'll put him more where, where tom hanks is now yeah um and it, and it helps i mean his age i don't know how close his age is to hanks or anything i He's pretty old guy, but he still looks, he still has that youthful look to him. Yeah, he's, I'm saying like maybe 10, 15, 20 years younger. And yeah. I I agree though, like, but it, and it sends to the idea of like the star system doesn't really exist anymore. Films no. aren't primarily sold off of a star, they're sold off of IP. Right. Or um, even directors, directors still have a cachet, I, I would argue. Mm-hmm. But I think stars are few and far between. And Stewart in a certain respect was among the last stars to carry cachet along with some others where you could probably still get a leading role out of them and, and it would sell. Um, and I think that, and, and as far, and if we want to tie this into man and whatnot, man's legacy is to never underestimate a director and right. We focus on for a director to never underestimate his, cachet of his star or whatever because whatever yeah. happened between he and Stewart, where they didn't work together anymore because uh, they worked together for five years straight or something and then boom they had a falling out and man's career i mean Stewart's kept going on but man's he had a lot more trouble 
uh, right. or at least making as big of films as he did with Stewart. I don't think he ever really got back to that same level again uh, that he was in. In well, 55, he was one of the gods of film creation, you know? Yeah. It, um, unfortunately, uh, man's time on Earth was very uh, uh, short-lived because he, he did move into the 60s and whatnot. He was the original director choice for Spartacus, but was fired early on by Kirk. Yeah. Um, and, um, he did have some success with El Kid, um, yeah. and, um, he, but then he had a flop with the fall of the Roman empire. His last film is a dandy in Aspic, um, and he died of a heart attack while filming it. And the film was finished by Lawrence Harvey. So when did he die? He 60... died in 67. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to 60... say mid sixties. Yeah. Yeah. So his legacy is cut off short from what it might've been, right. but also like, he has a lot of like a lot of directors. He has this period in the fifties where he is a God. And I feel like we talk about Houston Wells, Ford Capra. We talk about the austerity of these directors who pioneer, but Anthony Mann is, is, is a living example of never underestimate the people that you don't hear about on a frequent basis because they, they might end up being the influence for things that you like I would argue, you when we're talking about Tarantino, Tarantino is a household name. Yeah. But arguably, like a lot of what he has, he owes to somebody like Mann, who knows oh, sure. how to balance the tension in a dialogue scene, but also how to keep it visual. The one thing we can definitely say about how Tarantino falls into that and how we can sum that up is like, you know, the idea of a Western changing its form and its style is something that he did a couple times. First with, he did a Southern, as it were, with Django Unchained. And then yes. he just went into full-on Western with The Hateful Eight, but he put it in the snow. But also yeah. Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood really reshaped the Western oh, sure. with Unforgiven, um, yes. which came off of the Western being reshaped by Sergio Leone. Correct. So like, there, there's a whole trail, and it's, it's an example of like, the Western genre in Golden Age Hollywood has a lot of issues from a modern context, but it also has a lot of rich history that we still see today. Yes. Like th- this is still one of the most influential genres to ever exist. And yes. on that note, Daryl, I'm very it's happy. It's having a comeback, you... which is great. So good. Yeah, but... it is. And mostly in long form television, like yeah. Yellowstone, as you, ex- as you pointed out. Yeah. And on that note, Daryl, I want to thank you for bringing a prime example of that to the show. Um, okay. Really quickly, let people know where they can find you and how they can engage in the old time radio community that you have built up so lovingly over the past 15 years. Yeah. Two places essentially right now are are the main, my main things that I spend my time in. Well, three, I guess. Uh, For podcasting, if you look for me under uh, Jack Benny show otr podcast mm-hmm. so if you just type in jack benny show you'll find me <laughs> or, honestly if you just type in buck benny you'll probably find all my podcasts too so that one i do a daily podcast where we feature a lot of old-time radio shows focusing mainly on jack benny but also other shows as well um and and this year we're bringing you uh the big show yeah and the big show the the second season just became available for the first time in like 70 years or whatever and so we've been presenting the second season of that and that's been a lot of fun nice. then uh over then the other side of it is my it's called the judy garland uh and friends otr podcast but the reality is it's my just my way of fitting in judy garland bing crosby uh Bob, any of the, it's, it's just the big names, the folks that came from whether in television 
radio movies and it's their shows that they do so it's all the big name shows and and it's just a fun little piece i have that i do with that and so i'd love for folks to turn up for that and then the third place is on youtube and if you type in buck benny uh it'll, it'll on a search on youtube it'll it'll come up because it's um and we do weekly shows kind of like this one we're, we're doing today uh that we that we have where we talk we just kind of introduce something a movie or a tv show and so we'll talk about it i'll have a team of us to talk about it. zach's on the team recently and everything which is wonderful yeah and we'll talk about it the show for maybe 20 minutes and then we'll actually have the show presented after that you can watch the an episode of the jack benny show is what we spend most of our time on but we do other shows as well certainly rod serling's uh you're doing 19, a orson wells recently American. too you're doing orson wells's stuff orson wells, is- we spent a lot of time on orson wells we've kind of taken a break from orson for the past couple months but we were sinking into it heavy and we'll be back into it it's just my specialist owners and wells vincent longo who's wonderful and he has all this history of works and wells he's been busy and hasn't been available so i've kind of put it on hold until he's available and then we'll swing it back in and right. i'd love to get zach to be part of that i think he would be oh i i would love that i love orson i yeah. i i'm a I'm an orson not? i'm an orson defender through and through and i and he's not we need to do an oh, do one of his films on the show at some point for my yeah. fandom alone. But oh, I'd like love his to do, uh, any of his films, I, Citizen Kane would be wonderful. <laughs> yeah, Citizen Kane has been. You might have already done that one, I assume. No, it, no, we haven't. We haven't done any of his films because uh, there was an original attempt to do a full-on series of him on my spinoff show, YBR Presents, but. Oh. I'm thinking that I'd rather just include him in the fold because we get yeah. a better chance to explore. I can tell you that, and it'll because uh, that or a Touch of Evil would be so much fun to do as well. I mean, yeah, there's, there's so many um, of his films that would be great to do. There's actually one that I'm going to announce before we wrap this up that you'll hear about that might might make your eyebrows raise a little bit. But yeah, um, but thank you very much again, Daryl, for you're so welcome. It was so aboard. much fun. I'd love to yeah. do this again. Yeah, and we're going to have you back, and I have a couple of titles in mind. But in the meantime, that is going to wrap it up for this episode of Yesteryear Valley Hill Review. You can find us, find out about us on the back half of the show. Upcoming episodes, we're going to have Marshall Rosales back to talk about Salt of the Earth, which we talked about a little bit here today. We're going to get the full story of that crazy mess. And uh, I can announce here, as I was alluding to Buck, um, we are going to tackle the Magnificent Ambersons, and I'm going to bring on two people uh, who um, one of which has never been on the show, but one you are very familiar with. And I'm going to get that episode in the works. Um, and additionally, we will be diving into uh, Clint Eastwood um, because I am going to bring Adam Jewell back to talk about the good, bad, and the ugly. Um, nice. So uh, stay stay tuned for that and so much more. But until all of this and until next time, folks, good night. Night. <laughs> <laughs> This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds Podcast. This is Zach signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Bye.